0: They get mad at that that's fine i'm not i'm not doing
1: what i do to make sure nobody gets mad i can understand how that would ruffle feathers but it's not going to stop me what are you trying to do with this show i'm trying to attract the largest audience i can and hold it for as long as i can so that i can charge advertisers confiscatory advertising rates this is a business you're in it for the money mm. sure of course i'm doing a lot of this for money But I I don't want it to just stop there. I mean, everybody does what they do do for the money. If somebody tells you it's not the money, believe me, it's the money.
2: Well, I do believe him, uh, and we will get into that. Uh, My name is Ben Burgess. This is Give Them an Argument. I'm joined, as always, by our producer, Forrest. uh, And in a little while, I'm going to be speaking to uh, Emma Viglund. Uh, of the majority report uh, Which is not how I introduced her last time She's on the show, she's uh, moved up in the world uh, And then later uh, Pascal Robert uh, From uh, the This is Revolution podcast uh, And we were going to be talking To uh, Vic Viana about Pink Floyd As the substitute for the usual Outlaws and Revolutionary segment with Griscom uh, Vic is uh, You know, he's, he's got a, a Migraine tonight, so uh, we are going to do That uh, next Monday, but there is lots of other good stuff. Uh, that is, uh, that's, that's coming up, uh, tonight. Uh, we've got a preview that will play later of the, uh, patron, uh, bonus episode coming out on Thursday with, uh, C Derek Varn and Nia Cola arguing about modern monetary theory. Uh, there is, uh, there's going to, uh, Be a little review of the debate that i did earlier tonight with uh right wing megachurch pastor uh douglas wilson how did it go uh it was okay it was it was pretty good overall like like they his like his strategy made it like a little weird and frustrated at points because like it seemed like he wasn't really engaging with things that were pretty central to to his argument um and there was there was definitely one moment we'll talk about later that I, I should have pushed a lot harder than I did because I was just so surprised that he said it. Uh, but overall, it felt pretty good. Like overall, right, yeah.
3: it's, I, I find it like the concept of like arguing with theologians kind of crazy because you know the, like the ace in their the ace card they can draw is just like well you're going to hell, and that's not like you know what I mean that's not like a logical argument. Um, well, we
2: well we did get into that quite a bit, like whether that's like how like whether that should matter. You know, for for morality, you know, whether you're you're going to hell or not, which which to me is a little bit like saying that it's that um, you know, if if you like, you know, I don't know, you did something to piss off Stalin in Russia in the 1930s, sure he would punish you, but that doesn't tell you anything one way or the other about whether what he's doing is good or not. Yeah. Um, but uh, but anyway, yeah. Overall, I was overall I was happy with that. Um. But we're gonna so we're gonna talk about that. Uh, we are going to play later for Pascal a little preview of uh, something coming up uh, tomorrow. Uh, the uh, the Doug Wilson debate, by the way, I did on modern debate and what they always do is they'll day or two later they'll send me the uh, the video file so we could stick it up here. So I think probably Saturday is what would make sense for uh, for showing it here. Uh, but on Tuesday, tomorrow, uh, we are going to be showing uh the uh, the reaction video uh that's that's almost two hours that you and i and uh jason miles and uh and also uh jeremy Salmon uh recorded a couple days ago when we watched uh, Judas and the black messiah with patrons
3: that was, that was that was a good time i had fun doing that i felt like i almost felt like we were back to like a non- um a non pandemic world where you can, uh, <laughs> yeah. watch the movie and then bullshit about it later with friends and
2: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely it was really good um it was a really good discussion uh i enjoyed the, i think everybody enjoyed the movie there was some, there was some disagreement about the politics of the movie but i think everybody was yeah. liked even
3: it. i think jason was the most uh i guess adamant about it not being a and like like not being a positive movie in any shape of the of, of the term but he still kind of admitted that he enjoyed watching it
2: yeah yeah uh no it was a well put together movie but um but anyway so uh we will uh we'll do all that and uh and more later in the episode but uh i want to uh talk about uh the uh late and unlamented un- el Rushbo, who uh we uh, we saw earlier uh and what i said i believe it right it's not just in the sense that sure of course anybody who who has a uh, career. Uh, <laughs> sorry, and also our graphic designer Jay Andrew World was on that stream. I, d- I thought I, you know, listed off everybody, uh, but um, it was something. Not just, of course. Look, he wanted to make you know he wanted to make as good living as he could off of his chosen career. You know, who could blame him for that? Uh, if uh, all else made equal. Uh, what I say, I believe him when he says that he was he was in it for the money that that was his big goal.
3: Uh, advertising rates. He, <laughs> he, he had that. I love the. I feel like that's the moment that that right wing media kind of was was born in the form it is now because you know he he has that momentary panic on his face like oh shit like did I just say on sixty minutes that I don't give a fuck about what I'm talking about? I'm you can
2: just, tell the interviewer it's like oh I got him.
3: Yeah, and then see, it's like the dynamic between liberalism and conservatism kind of was born almost in that interaction because he's basically just saying, like, not even, you know, hiding it anymore. Like, I'm in this for the money. And the guy's like, he said he's in it for the money. Like, you know, we've got him now. It's like that we've got him meme that they used to do every time Trump said anything that uh, they cornered him. And then he realizes, like, no, people don't give a fuck. Like, just double down on it. And that's kind of the strategy that he used throughout his entire career. And there's so many, like, smaller versions of Rush Limbaugh born out of that. You know what I mean? Like,
2: yeah. No, exactly. Uh, and I think the the real, you know, like I think the real evidence that he didn't have any genuine political principles of any kind, really, uh, is comes in the fact that when he died, uh, both of the last two Republican presidents, uh, Donald Trump and George W. Bush, who, by the way, openly hated each other's guts. Those guys could not stand each other. And they were very public about it. But both of them were tripping over each other to praise Rush Limbaugh. And of course, that makes perfect sense because Limbaugh was equally willing to whip up the Republican base for God, country and George W. Bush in 2004 and for, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, Donald Trump's war against the deep state in 2016 and 2020. It didn't matter to him what product he was selling he was equally willing to sell it in both instances. In fact,
3: well, the policies don't change. Like, you know what I mean? In, in either case, that's kind of the, the, the bottom line of it. Like the things that Rush Limbaugh really did care about are, are the things that, you know, they're not necessarily saying like, it's the war against workers. It's the war to deregulate everything. It's industry getting more favorable terms and the culture war stuff that Rush Limbaugh was amazing at that. He whips up everybody into a frenzy. Isn't stuff they care about.
2: Well, that's the thing. Cause if it was, then this is crazy. Because, look, when I used to, you know, like most listen to Rush Limbaugh was like 2002, 2003, uh, 2004, because I was, uh, you know, living in Michigan. Uh, I was a student and like I did a lot of my time organizing anti-war protests. And, you know, this is the pre-podcast era. Uh, if, if you're listening to, you know, if you wanted to listen to something in the car and you didn't feel like listening to music at that moment, then it was pretty much either NPR gospel radio or Rush Limbaugh. Those were the choices.
3: Yeah. I uh, was raised on the NPR side of it, which has its own, uh, his, its own neuroses that came with that.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I mean, obviously, as I said, anti-war activist, I, I deeply disagreed, but you know, I'd, I'd listen, you know, I'd hate listen. That was part of it. Part of it was knowing the enemy. Uh, and part of it is just like, okay, look, there aren't a lot of options and this guy is kind of entertaining. Like, uh, like certainly if you contrast him to all the other, uh, right-wing talkers, he was the only one with like the slightest scintilla of like showmanship naturally about him. Like, yeah. you know, Would i list like Sean, like, so the way it was Rush Limbaugh from 12 to three, Sean Hannity from three to six, then they'd have like, cause like Hannity was like the number two right wing talk radio guy. And then they'd have like a per- group procession of the, like, you know, be your C list, uh, you know, radio, like wing hosts, Mark Levin, people like that throughout the evening until about midnight when uh, Coast to Coast AM came on, which was a version of talk radio that like was the, for, that was like the night shift and that was about like, you know, UFOs and paranormal events and stuff uh, you know, more than it was about politics Um uh,
3: interesting that Fox News has kind of taken that side of it and seamlessly put it in too because Tucker Carlson will have like people talking about UFOs on his show every once in a while and stuff Yeah, like,
2: why not, right? Yeah. I mean, sure like you know that's it's all the same uh and you know and again rush was you know i think sometimes people overstate the comedy thing it's not like he was that funny but he was but you know but he had a uh he had an aura about him of you know fucking around and you know and 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 kidding and he would do he would do this like sort of goofy over the top self promotional stuff you know, talk about how he was sitting behind the golden microphone at the non-existent excellence in broadcasting studio, in the Southern Command Center, and uh, he with talent on loan from God and half of his brain tied behind his back just to make it fair. And
3: which has a secondary—I mean, it has a secondary uh, purpose, which is when he does push his agenda, he can he can kind of push the limit on what was the joke and what was things that he was seriously talking about.
2: Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, but um, but the contrast with him and any of these other guys was stark. Uh, like, you know, Sean Hannity would do this thing where people would call in and they'd, they'd call him, they'd tell him he was a great American. He'd say, no, you, sir, are a great American. And it's like, whatever. You know, so I was like, Jesus Christ, what am I listening to? Uh, you know, whereas Rush... Uh, you know, the things he was saying was disgusting, but, you know, he did it in a way that made it seem fun, uh, which was a, which was a big part of, uh, of the, uh, the appeal and how he built that empire. Also, we should, you know, we shouldn't neglect a part of a big part of how he built that empire uh, was off of corporate monopoly practices. So up until 1987, uh, the federal, you know, Federal Communications Commission had something called the uh, Fairness Doctrine, uh, which said that, look, of, remember, technically speaking, the uh, the radio airwaves are public property. Uh, they're they're leased out essentially to private corporations, and so the government could set conditions for that leasing. And the you know one of them for decades was the Fairness Doctrine, which said you can't promote. You can't do editorial comment on controversial issues without providing airtime to contrasting views. Now, under the Reagan administration, that was ditched in 1987. Not very coincidentally, in 1988, uh, Rush starts his syndicated show, uh, and uh, of course, you know, he's doing nothing but, uh, you know, doing controversial opinions. I'd of course, add you can. Uh, this is also tied up in the rise of uh, Clear Channel. Uh, which uh, later re, you know rebranded as iHeartRadio, Radio, which is kind of funny because they also distribute podcasts, they also distribute podcast media that I'm pretty sure technically, uh, you know, were distributed by Clear Channel now. But uh, <laughs> but they uh, but Clear Channel owns something like you know like hundreds and hundreds of radio stations across the country. Like at his height, Rush Limbaugh's show was being you know broadcast at 650 stations uh, and change. I think uh, at the same time, and the effect of that. Uh, you know was that you had this corporation that could just put out the views of this guy without having any sort of legal requirement uh to uh to to allow other views to uh to be aired and so in combination with the fact that rush was an incredibly talented broadcaster like i think that's true doesn't make him less evil it actually made him more dangerous but yeah. you know he was an incredibly talented broadcaster and so the combination of that Um, you know, really let him build this empire and and kind of create right-wing talk radio as we know it. And back when I was listening to him, you know, like I said, 2002, 2003, 2004, he was the biggest apologist uh, for the Iraq war. He uh, he,
3: passed the point where the Bush administration itself was. I mean, after the Bush administration admitted that they had made a mistake about the WMDs, Rush was still pushing that line on his show. Um, Yeah,
2: yeah, well... And this is hilarious though. Uh, because I don't well, I should have thought of this earlier. You know, we don't have the clip, but the uh but uh uh Kyle Kalinsky uh played this clip of uh Limbaugh from about a year ago. Now, of course, he's seamlessly transitioned from being a George W. Bush Republican to being a Donald Trump Republican. Uh and if it was some third branding of Republicanism, he'd be that, right? Because he's he's you know, like He was just willing, again, as you say, if he cared about anything politically, it was that stuff like privatization and deregulation that was going to be constant from uh, Bush to Trump. Uh, The culture war branding of it, he was just indifferent to. He was happy to spout whatever bullshit uh, they wanted him to spout. Uh, So, you know, he, in February 2020, uh, he actually said on his show, like his way of squaring the circle between his previous, you know, strong support for George W. Bush and the war in Iraq with his support for for Trump, who was, of course, taking a very different line retroactively about Iraq, was, I swear to God, he said this, Democrats in the deep state tricked George W. Bush into invading Iraq. There we go. Okay, we got the clip. Ooh.
1: Oh. that told us there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Right. Let's, Let's go, go back, back to, to the, the Iraq War, 2003. 2003 George w. Bush, w. Bush spends a year and a half traveling the country preparing everybody, lobbying the American people to support it. Goes to the United Nations, has satellite photos, all kinds of stuff. Colin Powell up there showing the photos supposedly of weapons of mass destruction installations in Iraq. Saddam Hussein and the European Our allies in the intelligence community all support this. Now Bush, as a Republican, probably not popular with the deep state, particularly after how he was elected. You know, there was outrage, the Florida recount in 2000, a lot of Democrats, a lot of deep staters think that Gore should have been president. He won the popular vote. They think the Supreme Court unfairly put Bush in there. I think there was as much resentment in the deep state, we just didn't call it that then, for George W. Bush as there is today for Donald Trump. And if not the same, it's close. I think, how could, so many different intelligence agencies get something so wrong as weapons of mass destruction in iraq and remember they gave bush mounds of satellite photo evidence documentation evidence Colin powell was dispatched to the united nations to present this evidence and it was all bogus because we went in there it was the pretext for invading iraq after 9 11. we get in there and there are no weapons of mass destruction it was one of the most embarrassing things the bush administration had to scramble everybody had to scramble what i have seen this bunch of people in the intelligence community capable what they've tried with trump here this whole russia meddling trump colluding this whole thing is a gigantic lie a totally bogus hoax a silent coup that's when i began to think the weapons of mass destruction thing was a setup against bush too my point is this why should we believe these people
4: Hey there. <laughs> Hi, Emma. How you guys doing? You can hear me okay? Yep. Yeah. Hey, so, Forrest. How you doing? Hey. <laughs> uh, uh,
2: so we're now joined by the majority reports. Emma Vigland. I don't know if you got uh, saw that clip before we brought you on, uh, but uh, apparently uh, Rush Limbaugh's end-of-life belief was that Democrats in the deep state tricked George W. Bush into invading Iraq. <laughs>
4: Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for having me. I caught the tail end of it and uh, talk about some revisionist history, please.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, just to uh, like, uh, I know this is a long time ago, you know, so some people might not remember, but just to review, like, how did the Bush administration actually get, you know, the uh, evidence about weapons of mass destruction? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, well, uh, I think it might have had something to do with the deep state.
2: <laughs> okay, that was it. That was the, yeah, I mean, I think right, I, right. I,
4: I think I can end uh, whatever kind of logical leaps uh, Rush Limbaugh was trying to 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 jump there. Uh, I mean, the the origin really of kind of modern or many people uh, of my generation are a little older, their consciousness about intelligence. Uh, organization malfeasance is centered around the Iraq war and that very lie, which Rush Limbaugh was cheerleading ad nauseum. So um, it's a complete reversal of history. Um, The deep state was not against George W. Bush, uh, if, you know, whatever you want to call the deep state, whatever iteration of it. In fact, Bush was a, a, a pawn and working with hand in hand. I mean, the whole Lit, big deep state lie was that there were uh, WMDs, and Bush was an integral part of that. I might say.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, in fact, my understanding is the Bush administration uh, was really working pretty hard to uh, to get, uh, like, I think was it Dick Cheney set up his own little pseudo intelligence office the uh, to in order to get better cherry picked stuff. To make it sound like uh like iraq had weapons of mass destruction and he was getting from elsewhere so the the idea that they were just sort of unwitting victims of this is very strange but i mean it's also like it just goes to how how shameless his entire shtick was through uh you know throughout his life you know He, he was just gonna say whatever was convenient to republicans at the time and if it you know didn't fit with something else he'd said before whatever he'd figure it out
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I I am glad that we are talking about Rush Rush Limbaugh as he was, because, um, that clip right there is a great indication of why it's so dangerous to, uh, not depict history accurately. Um, you know, talking about Rush Limbaugh and who he was and his toxic influence on the discourse is important just as, uh, recounting or recanting the the history of the Iraq war is. Um, and Rush Limbaugh, by the way, of course, this is the cognitive dissonance of a truly evil man. <laughs> of course, he completely erases his own role in projecting that lie.
2: Yeah. Right. That they, uh, that he has portrayed it as if this is just something, you know, everybody believed, obviously there were um, like, you know, they were the largest protests in the history of the world, you know, against the beginning of the Iraq war. Uh, Lots and lots and lots of people didn't believe any of that.
4: Yeah. I mean, including uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Rush Limbaugh's a huge fan of, or was a huge fan of Bernie Sanders. He must be right. If, if he's interested in, in uh, politicians that were against, or Barbara Lee for that matter, or any of the other um, Democrats who are still in office who were pounding the table on this, or who were at least skeptical, um, he could reward them with some favorable commentary if he was a good faith actor, but that wasn't the case. Um, If there was one media personality who was most responsible for these deaths, it might've been Rush Limbaugh for the Iraq war for the lies, Uh, maybe Drudge um, because the Drudge report was taken seriously at that time. But um, Rush Limbaugh, I mean, let's not forget, I'm sure earlier in the program, you guys, maybe if you were talking about him, uh, talked about, so many of the, the horrific uh, lies that he spread, but um, there are, are few media personalities who have had an impact in the way that Rush Limbaugh had um, and, and spreading the Iraq war lies and the WMD lies was, was one of them. He had a segment where he would mock AIDS patients as they died, said it was uh, put upon themselves because of their deviant behavior
2: yeah, I mean, he literally played uh, "Looking for Love in the Wrong Places," you know, during his making fun of AIDS victims segment. Uh,
4: Hilarious. Yeah, yeah.
3: Which makes it, it extra—I um, don't know—just extra ironic, I guess. That a lot of uh, conservatives were like, "Wow, you're really mocking the death of Rush Limbaugh." To people on Twitter who maybe necessary, like, maybe shouldn't have been mocking the death of anybody. You know what I mean? But like the idea that Rush Limbaugh, of all people, who like the beginning of his career was mocking the death of innocent AIDS victims who hadn't done you know, any of the damage that Rush Limbaugh has done to our society would, yeah. would be mocked on air by him.
4: And I've seen, you know, I, I saw you, you played uh, Kyle Klinsky there and I watch Kyle from time to time. He's, I think he's, he's, you know, a, one of the great voices uh, on the left. And um, he was, he was talking about, well, you know, is it appropriate to celebrate the death of somebody? And he kind of made a distinction between someone like Dick Cheney and someone like Rush mm. Limbaugh. Um, because obviously Dick Cheney or I think Kissinger, he also mentioned they are responsible for the deaths of, of, you know, anywhere from millions to hundreds of thousands. Um, Their actions were sociopathic, psychopathic in many ways. Like, yes, of course I I will be even happier when someone or not happier, I shouldn't say, but I will be even less um, giving when someone, when one of those two pass away. But I I think Rush is a step down. I mean, just because he's a media uh, personality doesn't mean he he bore uh, bore no responsibility. Um, He had power in his own right. And, and, you know, media power is just a different flavor than governmental power. I think um, he exercised that. He gave birth to people like Ben Shapiro and other horrible human beings and Trumpism, that kind of ideology, that's directly because of of Rush.
2: Yeah, which is not, I mean... Ben Shapiro wrote something in the New York Times over the weekend, you know, where he was talking about uh, what a big influence Rush Limbaugh was on him. And I believe that. Um, But I mean, I I guess I'd make a distinction between celebrating that somebody's, you know, dead and just being honest uh, about them that, you know, that like whatever you like, whatever emotions might attach themselves to that for you or, or not attach themselves uh it's you know like turning like so often when people die they're just immediately sanitized and you know and and everything that they did is uh is swept away and you know and, and we can uh you know we can talk about um you know stuff like making fun of AIDS victims or uh his uh, Barack the Magic Negro song that you know that he played uh, on on her program to the tune of uh, Puff the Magic Dragon. for
4: uh, a and... well, comedian! Yeah, <laughs> was, like, hilarious. Yeah. yeah.
2: And then he refused. Right. Then
4: he,
3: right. he, he refused, to apologize for it afterwards. Yeah,
4: he, yeah.
2: He apologized for the AIDS one eventually, but he didn't yeah. apologize for uh, for the second one. Which, yeah, like this is. I mean, just, I mean, whatever, like take the morality out of it just as comedy. um, This is not exactly like Lenny Bruce level. Like, you know, what's the joke, you know? Oh yeah. You see that guy? He's black.
4: Yeah.
3: Well, the joke that he was trying to make was that um, Obama apparently changed his accent when talking to black audiences and white audiences. That was supposed to be the big joke. So he has this whole lead up where he's like playing clips of him at a church and he's supposedly talking to a black audience and he, talks more black which like what the fuck even does that even mean you know what i mean like but well, there's also
2: there's, uh, but it's also the question of like look lots of, of politicians uh modulate how they sound to different audiences uh i mean if you look at clips of hillary clinton when she was uh in arkansas in the 80s uh, like she sounds like she grew up in Arkansas. It's actually like two well, you're st- probably
4: proving Rush's point at that point. But like you know, Bush drove a pickup truck to to campaign events. Does he think yeah. he did that all the time? Yeah. I'm, well, yeah. I
2: actually, I actually uh, knew somebody um, you know many years ago who uh, was came from Austin, and I think you know worked at a uh, restaurant maybe where where he'd served uh, Bush uh, a few times uh, before he uh, he ran for president. And he said, you know, he never sounded like that, you know, like the, the way that, that Bush played up the, uh, the Texan, you know, speech patterns, you know, later, he didn't sound like that as governor of
4: Texas. I mean, Uh, his brother doesn't sound, didn't sound like that. And and like, did rush, you know, I I would say the rush there, not to cut you off, Ben, I apologize, but, um, I'd say the rush, you know, do you talk to, uh, prostitutes in the same way that you talk to your (laughs) audience on the mic? Probably actually. Maybe just screaming about (laughs) black people to them.
2: Yeah, that's a fascinating question. So, uh, of course, uh, people who might not be familiar with this, uh, Rush Limbaugh was uh, was caught with uh, Viagra. He didn't have prescription for on his way back from uh, the Dominican Republic. Uh, And I believe his public comment on it was something like fun weekend. Wish I could tell you guys about it. So uh, since he didn't, I guess we don't know if the probably underage prostitutes in the Dominican Republic got to be screamed at about liberals, you know, uh, during those encounters or not. Was
3: that before <laughs> or after his big arrest for uh, getting what two thousand oxy shipped to his house and, and from different doctors or something? Um, uh,
4: I don't. I think that was around the same time, but I don't know if it, it might have been two separate incidents. Uh, but obviously, he's a deviant. Where where are the fathers? Where's Russia's father in this situation?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Must have raised him wrong. Right, exactly. Or conversely, um, all right. Like, where, like, what I always wanted to know is, is look, I mean, if 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 Rush Limbaugh had come back on air and he'd said, uh, look, after my own experience and coming out of rehab uh, and everything, I now understand that I was wrong for the last twenty years to push the drug war. Uh, and now I understand it's a medical issue and you know should be dealt with compassionately and not through the carceral state. Well Ben, um, where's the audience? That so I, happened, I missed it. Where's the
3: audience for that? You know, he's gonna lose his uh, his long his long term audience. And eventually, you know, once the audience goes, it's the advertisers that he can charge confiscatory rates to. So apologies just don't work for Rush.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and I think Emma's point about uh, the Iraq War is important, too, that, you know, Russia's employer, uh, Clear Channel, uh, that owned all those radio stations, um, you know, was actually organizing uh, pro-war, like, mass rallies to, you know, to counter, you know, the anti-war movement. Uh, he was their, you know, flagship program, you know, that's, that's, that's what everything was built around, were those three hours of Rush Limbaugh, and he was using those three hours to relentlessly uh propagandize for the war
4: um
3: three hours of rush limbaugh sounds like the most exhausting just awful fucking thing i can
4: (laughs) some people some people listened every single day i mean the sad the sad saddest thing to come out of this is that uh sam won't be able to do random rush anymore segment where uh he'd just pop into whatever rush limbaugh was saying during his rants and then respond to it for 60 seconds just a random 60 seconds and um, so that's, it It has been a bit sad. Over yeah, yeah, that part part sad. Or, yeah. That part is sad.
2: Yeah. Although I think that the fact that he did get people used to that, that they were listening to three hours of Rush Limbaugh five days a week and, you know, go into the fact that he used it for evil, but he was a very talented broadcaster. I think he did that unscripted. Uh, really, if you want to talk about Rush Limbaugh's legacy, Donald Trump is Rush Limbaugh's legacy. Uh, Because he got the Republican base, he gave them a taste for that. Like, if you think about, like, a Donald Trump speech basically just is what Rush Limbaugh did on the radio. Is this endless meandering monologue, and parts of it are kind of funny, and there's a lot of, like, weird demagoguery in it. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Well, a perfect
3: example of that is the Michael J. Fox thing. You know, Rush Limbaugh mocked Michael J. Fox's Parkinson's at one point. And refused to apologize for it. And then you have Donald Trump in 2016 mocking that uh, journalist that apparently had cerebral palsy. It's the exact, I mean, it's the exact same bit at that point. Or, you know, I mean, I guess bit is the wrong word, but like, you know, it's it's that same, like without somebody like Rush Limbaugh, I don't think Donald Trump could have gotten away with a lot of the stuff that he did.
4: Oh, 100%. And, and I, you know, Ben, I'm glad you brought up Trump, because I just keep thinking who is the nat- natural successor to this kind of broadcasting. And to me, it's like, if Trump had the work ethic for it, um, or if he already had an audience in place, maybe he could do it. But it's the same kind of deal. I mean, just like, that's what those rallies were, too. Um, it was just basically a Rush Limbaugh radio program, except with Trump flavoring, um, where he would just rant for however long he wanted about whatever topic he wanted. And he, uh, you know, I guess Rush Limbaugh fed off of advertisers, Trump fed off the crowd. Um, but then you also kind of see Alex Jones having mm. occupied a similar space for a new generation. Um, and what that kind of conspiracy paddling to, I mean, now Alex Jones is trying to say QAnon was, is lunacy, except he's the godfather of QAnon and that kind of thinking that there's a pedophile behind everyone in, in, in in government, but you know, it, you just wonder where this goes um, because the, there's going to be more and more of these kinds of people cropping up. It just I, I don't, I can't see someone having the longevity of Rush Limbaugh with the rise of the internet. Because um, even Ben Shapiro is a little kind of stale yeah. at this point. Yeah,
2: I mean the Alex Jones thing is interesting because you know that almost seems like. At that, like, at the point that Jones was entering that marketplace, it's like, okay, if you're going to compete with this, you have to up the ante somehow. It can't just be yeah. like liberals and welfare mothers. It has to be like demons and you know.
4: Well, you know, uh, Rush took a second to get on the Trump train too. Um, so there was there was that as well. But go on.
2: Yeah. Uh. So before we leave the subject of uh, of Rush Limbaugh, we uh, we we should you know talk about uh. The kind of core of uh, of what he uh, what he stood for, uh, which you know, like you take all of the attempts to throw red meat to the base, and you know, put it to one side. I think I think this was at the heart of it. Uh, Forrest, do you have the uh, the union clip?
1: Yeah, becomes sacred. That's another trick. I don't attack the unions. They're just working people. right They're just the workers. They're trying to make people. We don't have workers. I hate that term, workers, applied to people who are employed in the private sector. You believe that unions are like uh, the fetus of the mafia? Well, yeah. They're gestating in there in the mafia womb. It's a problem of it because these fetuses are never aborted. It's working people that are losing their jobs. Real working, non-unionized people who are losing their jobs. And just like in Greece... You, know, you tell the freeloaders the free ride is over and they just raise hell. The collective bargaining of public sector unions is simply stealing from the taxpayers of that state. This is simply public sector unions stealing from taxpayers under the guise of collective bargaining. And
4: Wow. <laughs> I mean, so, so if the unions are the mafia in this scenario, um, who are the corporations? Who are the bosses? I mean, like that. That like are those? Is that the United States government? That's kind of this this really weird projection. I mean, the it's it's really the inverse.
2: Yeah, right. Uh, that's that's a good uh, that's a, you know that's a good question. I mean, and and I think that the the beginning of the clip was interesting when he says that uh, you know he doesn't even want to hear this word workers. You know, when, when it comes to people you know, heard the private sector because any kind of frank acknowledgement that there's a difference between the situation of people who are relatively powerless on the job, you know, who are, who are dependent uh, on, you know, on an employer and people who, who own their own businesses is just totally verboten in the Rush worldview.
4: Yeah. Um, I mean, the the Rush worldview is the id of modern conservatism. I guess that's that's Trump. I would kind of call him the Frankenstein. But um, I mean, that's how Rush should be remembered as a virulent racist and open sexist. I mean, the term feminazi, I feel like whenever that was, 2011, that was like ubiquitously used, I think in a way that you know, almost joking, you know, jokingly, but if you say you, I, you know, I came into contact with somebody of the conservative persuasion, it would be tossed around or like, that was because of rush. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and um, it's just hard to, uh, I, I, I've said this before, kind of in not on the show, actually, but just in casual conversation about how Mitch McConnell is the most impactful politician of the past 25 years. Um, and, and there's an argument to be made that Rush is his mirror version in, in media because of, like, just maybe not always the most front and center person, but in terms of manipulating the government in, in uh, McConnell's case and the discourse in um, Limbaugh's case in order to further corporate power, demonize immigrants, black people, Muslims um, and entrenched the Republican party, uh, in mainstream discourse, um, as something that should be acceptable. Uh, both of them kind of worked hand in hand in different areas of, of public life. Um, and they both were very effective and it's very bad for, for the world.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, fair enough. Uh, so since you mentioned, uh, since you mentioned, uh, Mitch McConnell, I do want to, uh, do want to switch gears and, uh, uh, talk about the senate particularly a, uh, a a senate confirmation battle uh so do you have uh forrest do you have the uh, bernie near clip
3: yeah hold on i have to pull it up
4: well yeah so near tan not not a shoe in <laughs> apparently not who would have um, thought she's a little controversial <laughs>
2: Yeah, so my understanding is that she actually got a Twitter account later than Trump did, but apparently she actually tweeted more times uh you know during during their respective times on uh, on Twitter which which is amazing. Like you just have to consider like the dedication that you'd have to have to be online like just forget what the content was, just to tweet as often as Neera Tanden did.
4: <laughs> yeah, well I wouldn't know. She blocked me in like 2017. So I I'm almost like you know, immune to her horribleness because I haven't been able to see it for a while.
3: Yeah. All right. You ready for the
5: clip? Yeah. Received under your leadership. According to the Washington post since 2014, center for American progress has received at least $38 million from corporate America, including wall street and every public every special interest that I can think of. So before I vote on your nomination, it is important for me and members of this committee to know that those donations that you have secured at CAP will not influence your decision-making at the OMB.
2: Which I was glad to see because, as hilarious as it is, after Nira has spent you know the last five years, whatever, as this like anti-leftist troll on Twitter, so it has been very, very funny to see her being grilled about how all of her, uh, all of her tweets uh, over uh, over the years. Uh, but it was also good to see like Bertie there calling attention to the fact that there are actually much bigger issues with Neera Tanden uh, than all the stupid shit that she's put on Twitter.
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I I, look, he's our, our substantive King. I mean, he's not going to get petty about this. um, Even though I guess, who was it? um, Was it Senator Kennedy who brought, who, who may had that line about how, you know, she's called everyone uh, she's called senator sanders everything except an ignorant slut
2: <laughs>
3: yeah yeah, yeah you funny. know
4: uh, republican kennedy uh really in, interested in bernie sanders's feelings all of a sudden yeah. um yeah. so like that part's stupid i mean it's just like yeah you guys you know, for the republican side you guys supported donald trump for for four years and you're you're chock full of think tanks that take money from Saudi Arabia, from a variety of different uh, nefarious actors and, and countries that present conflicts of interest, um, everything that Neera Tanden is guilty of. So I, I have no sympathy for their kind of argument there. But I'm going to take Joe Manchin's no vote against her. I don't want her rewarded for her behavior. Um, She's an extreme, someone who is a Democratic Party soldier to the point where it's basically deranged. I mean, the way that she went after Bernie Sanders and progressives and other leftists was like, I don't really want this person in government. It was unhinged. And so. She's Hillary
3: Clinton's Clinton's, like heavy. You know what I mean? Like she was the person behind Hillary Clinton actually doing like the not bodyguard work, but like almost, you know what I mean? Like, so well, yeah.
4: And so this this was Biden's, this was Biden's gift to Clinton world. Um, and, and, you know, to me that's, that's not worth it, but, uh, that's kind of how Biden seems to be appointing people in these cabinet posts. Like one, if it's somebody who he can, you know, check a diversity quota for, I mean, yes, some representation is important, but it's important as a buttress or as a, as a, you know, another piece of progressive right. policy. Um, but, but, or if, or uh, giving a favor to an old friend, I mean, the the Merrick Garland pick is, is right. um, obvious there. I mean, he could have gone with more progressive options or better options there, but they wanted to, give Merrick Garland a position because he was, I guess, cheated out of the one by Mitch McConnell. So that was the whole, and then near a tandem, it's like, oh, well, Clinton world helped us win the election. So then we reward Clinton world. Um, but the, there are so many problematic elements and, um, she's a corrupt person. She's, uh, a, a very emotional. <laughs> I, I I say that, you know, just, I, I understand that that's often used against women, but, um, an aggressive kind of uh bulldog on behalf of corporate democrats and i'm fine seeing her nomination sunk really no matter the reason because it's that they can get somebody better in that position
3: yeah Yeah. there there is a there's a good faith criticism to that which is that the democrats kind of position themselves to be like the non-trump party in 2020 yeah yeah like biden stood up and said you know we need unity like this this these mean tweets they don't you know they, they don't help anybody like and and that was kind of the, how he pitched himself. He didn't pitch himself on policy. He pitched himself on being nice and unifying. And Neera tandem is anything but unifying.
4: Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. The, like, I, I guess the hypocrisy on the right—you can you can turn it around on Biden. Why nominate somebody who um, exemplified all those traits that you were so against in Trump? I mean, it's it's nonsensical if you're looking at it from a logical perspective. If you're giving them an argument, uh, Ben. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh... <laughs> And, and you know, you say that the emotional thing, you know, has, has been used in sexist ways. It certainly has. But also, this is kind of what, something that people were correctly pointing out about Trump, that you always got the impression that, you know, like, we could start a war at three in the morning because he got really angry on Twitter.
4: Yeah, I mean, that, that was a major concern. Um, and you kind of... Uh, see some of those like impulsive, weird traits in tandem. I mean, in the OMB, it's not like she has her finger on the nuclear trigger, but, um, but, you know, it, she would be have to be working directly with the Senate budget chair and that's Bernie Sanders. And I think that that's concerning in its own right. And I think her ties to other governments and the fact that she kind of gutted cap, um, which was, uh, you know, f- better. Um, think tanks are always for the most part with a few exceptions, often ways to funnel money into DC, um, from other areas, but, but cap was a better organization until she started taking money from anywhere and everywhere that would want to peddle influence. And, and then it, it really made sure that it was a, a shell of itself just because it has progress in the name doesn't mean it represented, represented anything. And so, you know, she kind of showed a shamelessness, um, and like, in a, a, a lack of principles, and her leadership there. And so I don't really want that um, anywhere, anywhere near a uh, major office. <laughs> she also
3: um, basically like advocated at different times, like gutting pretty much every program that, you know, the Biden administration would at least pretend that they wanted to keep working on like social security, Medicare, Medicaid, like everywhere that would require, you know, like some kind of budget from the federal government. She's at one point or another sent an email that was like, well, why don't we kind of cut this a little bit? And We can kind of save money and not, you know, like her deficit, like her deficit hawking was, was a definite when she was running like a think tank.
4: (laughs) Well, I mean, and then the, the, the weird uh, and disturbing WikiLeaks emails about, um, was it going into Syria or going into Libya? Libya.
2: That that we were going to take their oil, like that we should make Libya compensate us for bombing them through their oil money.
4: Yeah, that's, um, an insane statement. Uh, and one that like, if, um, Democrats had gotten leaked emails from say, you know, someone in the Trump era or, or in, in Bush times, I mean, that would be outrageous. Even the Bush people were smart enough not to say it that explicitly, even though that was their clear goals, you know? Uh, so I like, um, yeah, I think all of, uh, all of those, those, uh, points are true. And and just, I, (laughs) I see people kind of ironically, but not pointing out like, Oh, this is a loss for posting everywhere basically. Cause she was so online and <laughs> such a, such a part of Twitter culture if you're on Twitter as a progressive, but yeah. although not for me, cause again, I'm blocked. I'm still bitter <laughs> about it. I want to see all her unhinged stuff, but um,
2: she's deleted a lot of it anyway.
4: Oh yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 uh, it was because I pointed out, she said, we go high, uh, when they go high we or when they go low, we go high high and it doesn't fucking work. And I, I tweeted, you know, didn't you, uh, work on the Hillary campaign when you mm-hmm. leaked those photos of Obama in ostensibly Muslim garb, but I digress. Um, but but she she's not just like a poster. She's also, uh, I saw this point being made somewhere. She's like a boss and she was an abusive boss that was accused of punching Bernie Sanders campaign manager Fashikar in the stomach, <laughs> or at least like hitting him, accused of that. Um, mm-hmm. She was accused of a lot of really bad things. Uh, and And just because she's a part of the d c uh, elite circles uh, and and centrist democratic politics, which let's be real, the media is biased towards. she gets a free pass That's, and, and that shouldn't be the case.
2: yeah, uh, for uh, for sure. Uh, and and I mean honestly, if if uh, if Nerotan, you know, the more you know if you think, okay, Nerotandin is emblematic of like posters, you know, people who spend all their time uh, on uh, on Twitter. Ah, uh, you know, engaged in posting wars, then that seems like another excellent reason uh, not to have to be the head of the OMB. Uh, I don't want to give posters anything. I think, you know, like, I think we should be discouraging that.
4: Yeah, yeah. Although uh, I gotta say, I I would qualify myself a little bit in that cat. I'm trying to take a little bit of time away from Twitter, but I uh, i
2: mean, I'm a good I mean, luck. I I I qualify a little bit too. I just you know like like I, I'm not. You know, I'm not somebody. You know, like this. This critique is being delivered from inside the room. You know, like <laughs> I, 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 you know, yeah. Like like I'm i leaned over the coffee table with everybody else with the you know the rolled up dollar bill with the you know specks of coke coming out of it. Out <laughs> of you know, like, guys, we, we should all be doing less blow right now. Yeah,
4: um, but, I, love know, just, image, I love that image. I love that image.
3: Oh, no more, no more copium for us.
4: Um, <laughs> no more. <laughs> I know I, I ran out. <laughs> um,
2: but uh, speaking of Democrats, uh, who uh, who could be you know we we're talking about you know things that were Trumpish uh, about uh, about Nira. Uh, let's talk about this guy. Oh God.
6: <laughs> and the worst news is still tragic
7: news. Number of deaths: five hundred and forty. Uh, it's not as high as it was still 540 people died yesterday, 540 people, 540 families, Uh, 504 in hospitals, 36 in nursing homes. Nursing homes are the single biggest fear in all of this. Vulnerable people in one place. It is the feeding frenzy for this virus, despite everything we can do in the best effort. People who are working in those nursing homes who are doing just a fantastic job. The state is not going to come in and do their job for them. That would be a state-run facility. That's a, a prison. That's you know a, a different situation where we run the facility. We don't run these facilities.
4: Is the state saying that these nursing homes, that as you said are private, have to take back these COVID patients. That's a state mandate. How do you recognize Well, it's,
7: it's their patient, it's their patient, and their patient that they're getting paid to take care of, now contracts the COVID virus. Okay, now you have to take care of that patient who you're getting paid to take care of with the COVID virus. And what if they can't? Are they then? If you leave, can't, be non-compliant with. Well, yeah. The if state you can't, medication? if you're saying I can't take care of my patients then fine, then tell us you can't take care of the patients and we'll make other, uh, we'll make other accommodations. What's the penalty for that if they can't... Well, if you can't run your business, you can't run your business. Penalty is your own. You know, you're know, you out of business. But if people are dying because, again, the, the facility, it seems like a revolving... Uh, if you look at New York State, we have a lower percentage of deaths in nursing homes... Than other states. Whoa, a third of all deaths.
2: What were you were gonna say, Abba.
4: Sorry, no. I just said whoa. I, I I thought I could talk over it. Um, that's just uh, I didn't mean to, to pause the clip, but that's just an unbelievable um, touting as he knew it's he was lot-
3: to thirty. It's nationally, I think he says thirty percent of uh. of nursing home or deaths are from nursing homes in New York state. It's 28%. That's his, uh, below the.
4: (laughs) Oh, that's just dark. You you can keep going. (laughs)
7: Number of deaths in nursing homes, but who cares? 33, 28 died in a hospital, died in a nursing home. They died. And I dealt with the loss of my father. The pain is so incredible uh, and inexplicable and why, and why, and why, uh, it's a tragedy, it's a tragedy. And I understand maybe the instinct to, to blame or to find some relief for the pain that you're feeling. But uh, it is a tragedy, and it's a tragedy that continues today. Uh, I want to set the record straight on nursing homes for a number of reasons, primarily for the families of nursing home people. Uh, we, created a void by not producing enough public information fast enough. Uh, People wanted information, we did not produce public information fast enough. That creates a void. What happens in a void, especially today, in this environment, in this toxic political environment, uh, something fills the void and conspiracy theories and politics and rumors fill the void. And you can't allow inaccurate information to go unanswered. Twitter, bogus reports become a reality at one point. Social media, 24-hour news stations, if you don't correct it, it gets repeated, and it gets repeated and it gets repeated, and then people think it's true. Uh, It's a very difficult environment to operate in. We created the void by not producing enough public information quickly enough, I get that. But then it was exploited with misinformation, people playing politics, Republicans playing politics, uh, personal attacks, personal agendas. And now this continues and people get confused
4: okay well uh, the th- there's a lot there um, but the fact that he was using the nursing home data specifically at that time I don't know when that clip was but clearly earlier on in order to tout New York, as doing a better job than other people as he's obscuring the amount of COVID deaths, half of nursing home deaths almost were, um, hidden basically. Um, that's, that's pretty hard. That the,
0: the,
3: the, the timeline is, um, cause I, cause I made that clip. Oh, wow. Heard, and that's I awesome! Hearing, I was trying to show the, like how this, how this has changed so we could talk about it. Um, so I believe the first one was ten months ago when it started, when everyone was giving him more than the benefit of the doubt. When he's talking tough um, with the nursing homes in that in that second clip, that's when he was signing the uh, the immunity for nursing homes and for hospitals. Around the same time, he's basically saying, all right, well, now you can't sue hospitals for your loved ones dying or nursing homes. They are kind of protected by the state. Um, the third one is when the or the, the one with the data is when the story broke, where he was saying, oh, who cares, you know, where they died because people are saying, well, you obscured the nursing home deaths. You didn't report the hospitalization deaths, only the original nursing home deaths. And then the last two were his like recent. Now that he kind of has to come out and say we were wrong and come up with something that he was wrong about, it's obviously, well, you know, we didn't we didn't tell people enough information because um, you know, because you know, they're they're dealing with enough and we kind of just like, you know, we should have we should have been more open with them about the information because then they get too many ideas. Not I'm sorry for obscuring the information because I didn't report it to the federal government because I didn't know what they were going to do, and I wanted to keep making sure that nursing homes donating millions of dollars to my campaigns and hospitals were um, (laughs) were shielded.
4: Well, I mean, he's this is the Sam was just pointing this out to me the other day, um, or a few a month ago or so, um, about uh, how he's you know he was talking tough about uh, the hospitals distributing vaccines because around a month or six weeks ago, he said, I'm unilaterally deciding that these hospitals, a lot of them for profit, which donate to him, um, are going to be distributing the vaccine. Now they don't have the infrastructure to do it. Um, and these local hospital centers or these local, facilities have been training for this for months. And they were like, what? Why are hospitals getting exclusive rights to distribute these vaccines? And then he's like, and if you can't do it, you know, you're, you're going to be in trouble basically threatening them as well. Talking tough in public, like talking tough to nursing homes in public, but really running interference for them behind the scenes and then bullying people that get in his way. I mean, he's smarter than Trump, but this is Trump, right? This is like lying about COVID, and then bullying people behind the scenes in the same way that we saw, um, in, in those, you know, him pretty much admit to lying in those, um, Woodward tapes. And in countless instances, he's blue MAGA and the, the Democrats still defending him. You're just like a part of the blue cult, uh, as opposed to the red one. And you're obsessed with personalities. That's it.
3: Well, his, his top aide, the one that was caught on uh tape by, I think Newsmax or whatever saying, um, saying a bunch to a bunch of, don- like to, to a bunch of uh, assemblymen and state senators that they had obscured the data and that they panicked when the federal government was coming after them for nursing home data. Her brother, sister and father, I believe, are part of the are lawyers for the lobbyist group that originally donated all the money to Cuomo's campaign in 2018, which then he, uh, which then lobbied him to pass the immunity laws, which um, stopped hospital executives and nursing homes from getting like heavy penalties for deaths in their facilities. So, like, it's this kind of unbridled corruption, too, that kind of makes him exactly like Trump. He's like yeah.
2: very unlike Trump in that, uh, in that Trump uh, couldn't go on uh, CNN or even Fox News and be interviewed by a member of the Trump family.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
4: well, but but that would be so heartwarming then, right? Um, I mean, that's how that was treated. How cute is it? Um i tweeted joking just these cuomo sexuals are basically mentally deranged <laughs> i find everything about him to be so off-putting and like again it's just um i was i built blasio has a million problems but i was heartened to see him stand up for uh, assemblyman kim ron kim who had basically blown blown the whistle on a lot of um these these tactics by uh by Cuomo and his attempt to, to cover up this nursing home data and just said, yeah, this is par for the course in New York. It's an open secret here that he is like the worst guy Cuomo. And I've heard it from people who've worked with him personally. Um, I won't like name names, but just he's like basically a terrible human being and treats people with like blatant disrespect and kind of the way that we saw, you know, people talk about how Trump was horrible when they'd work with him. Um, like Cuomo is an entitled And uh, son of a mayor who, I mean, not mayor, excuse me, of a governor who, um, you know, uh, basically bred him to be this, uh, prodigal, prodigal, prodigal son. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and he hasn't lived up to that. And so he behaves with entitlement at every turn. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is a massive scandal and it should kind of, he should resign. I know that the, the New York state government is going to vote on whether to strip him of his emergency powers, but that, that's not enough. I mean, the guy's being investigated by the FBI right now.
2: Yeah. and Right. Uh, and it is ridiculous that if you think back to last spring and summer, uh, when this Cuomo cult was at its height, really, I mean, even based on, you know, before people knew everything was going on with the nursing homes and all that, just based on what was public information at the time. Uh, I mean, By any normal metric, he had massively bungled uh, the COVID crisis in New York, uh, and it seemed like what, you know, people were zeroing in on him for how he kind of became this weird liberal hero is that he gave press conferences and he seemed to know what he was talking about more than Trump did at his, and that was about where the bar was.
4: And and to me, like, I will be fully honest, At, at the start of the pandemic when we knew nothing, I like took some comfort in that and uh like i'll be real um i'm i got swept up in some of that stuff and being like all right well i can tune into this and there's a public official who's kind of saying what's what's up um but kind of is uh, doing a lot of work here because I was never know,
2: homosexual
4: i was never please please uh don't even mention uh, me in the same name as that word uh <laughs> I am I'm whatever the, I'm prejudiced against them to be honest. I think they should have less rights than us. Uh, I, I hope the Supreme Court rules to strip them of of um of their rights, but um but I digress. Yeah,
2: you know. A quomophobe like that old Seinfeld episode with the anti-dentites, you know, who hate (laughs) you.
4: Yes, I am. I am a proud quomophobe and um, I deserve to. It's my religious right to be able to not bake them cakes and not accept them in public (laughs) life. Um, But but yeah, I mean, it was like that that was partly, you know, because Trump was so bad at providing yeah. COVID information, there was one person. This was when New York was hit so badly, and you know I'm here in New York, freaked out. Um, so yeah, but like that's not leadership. Uh, that's one part of it. And yeah, okay, cool. He's better at Trump than Trump at that. But is that really the bar for a solidly blue state um, that could have actual progressive leadership that could have? single payer health care that could have all of these uh, institutions that tr- that Cuomo has actively tried to um, disembodied or er, disembowel. That's the word well, I was the, going to.
3: One cool thing is that he spent his political career kind of treating New York like an old machine, like a political machine, like a, like a mayor daily in Chicago or whatever, something like that. And of course that's going to slip away as New York is a, you know, a fairly progressive state in a lot of ways, like at least the voters are. but like, but Cuomo's kind of essentially made it so that anybody that uh, challenges him, he has the city and like, it's going to vote for him no matter what. And he doesn't ever have a real challenge. Like the the Republicans here are weird. Like, like even for Republicans, the people that end up trying to run against someone like Cuomo are just fucking weird. And Cuomo knows that. And then the progressive, you know, the progressive challenges don't really go anywhere because he manages to, you know, slip something here or there so that, One of these parties or like one of these, one of these, like even, even like the working families party and stuff that have gone against him, like he kind of, you know, either threatens them with something or provides them with something they need at the last minute and kind of takes away the air and the sails of whatever progressive challenge he has.
4: Well, totally. I mean, and you see this in big States like California, and I also put Massachusetts up there to a lesser extent that are, that are blue, but that have a lot of money and a lot of people and they have large political machines that operate in a corrupt way that's independent of traditional right-left politics that we see on a national scale. Uh, We saw this with the Alex Morse versus Rishi Neal situation of a state party, a state democratic party operating in a corrupt manner. Um, And we see it with Gavin Newsom with uh, the way they killed single payer healthcare there um, with a lot of the the way that large states that are, you know, would be uh, medium-sized countries on an, uh, uh, on an international scale, how they behave when they don't really have, um, a Republican threat there that breeds corruption in many ways. And then of course, Cuomo with this and the IDC, which was a built-in infrastructure for him to not pass anything progressive. So that's something that we all just have to be aware of because, um, it's not (laughs) when the one good blue team wins, we're all set. Um, it's all about uh, what what rules are put in place um, in order to incentivize the right things and, and yeah uh, s- states like New York they have a, a big issue in, in that area.
3: It was nice to see the IDC completely get destroyed in 2018.
4: Yeah, that was a big that was a big deal and, and, and um, you know uh, let me know if I'm going on and on but just the, the Cynthia Nixon campaign was great. It, it obviously it. wasn't an electoral success, but <sighs> God. The Amy McGrath run in Kentucky is a case study as to why this is just like the really wrong way to go, Um, because you see what Cynthia Nixon did. She didn't win, but her run laid the foundation for all of these progressive candidates and helped eliminate the IDC and then take Stacey Abrams, for example, in Georgia. She didn't win. But her run laid the infrastructure, a massive amount of like voter registration ability and get out the votability and all of these other things. And, and plus, she continued her work um, for there to be electoral success. And now, look, it paid dev- dividends. And then in Kentucky, ah, she loses by ten points. It's Chuck Schumer's handpicked candidate. They just throw money at the issue, whereas Charles Booker, who actually you know was a progressive and got. At- kentucky state party support too um he could have stayed there in the state really built up a coalition and then maybe made a run run at things um in the future and built up progressive power in kentucky so um even if you lose is my point running the right kind of campaign and right kind of candidate can really pay dividends for progress down the road
3: before uh, before um, Cynthia Nixon ran against him, it was Zephyr Teachout, who was an incredibly solid ally for Bernie. And he yeah. kind of was willing to go farther than Bernie with that uh, Joe Biden corruption letter. But um, in 2016, as Trump won, she ran for the Congress, like she ran for my Congress uh, or seat, like where I live, and um, got destroyed by this guy, John Faso, who was a literally like a Trump, like, a Trump clone. Cause you know, they had like a bunch of those Republican Trump clones that
4: I remember that race. Yeah. Well, um, are you, uh, are you in Orange County somewhere near there? Um, near
3: there. Yeah. I'm in, I'm in New Falls, which is Ulster County, but yeah, it's like, yeah. my mom
4: grew up in Middletown. So I, I, uh, I'm oh, like, wow. yeah, I, I uh, know the area a little bit and I followed that race. Cause I love Zephyr Teachout. I read her book in college and stuff. Um, she got screwed by that Trump wave because she was like, not one of the Clinton-type Democrats that lost. Yeah, uh, she just was like tied with them, unfortunately.
3: She also was an enemy of Cuomo because she had run against him. So a lot of the state resources that maybe could have been delivered to somebody didn't necessarily, I don't think, reach her.
2: <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's let's uh, switch gears before Emma goes and uh, talk about the uh, National Democratic Party uh, for uh, for a second. Uh, do you uh, do you have the last clip uh, for us?
5: Yeah. Our recovery plan also calls for an increase in the minimum wage at 15, at least $15 an hour. No one in America should work 40 hours a week making below the poverty line. $15 gets people above the poverty line. We have so many millions of people working 40 hours a week, working, and some with two jobs and they're still below the poverty line. Our plan includes access to affordable childcare. That's going to enable parents, particularly women, to get back to work, millions who are not working now because they don't have that care. All told, the American Rescue Plan would lift 12 million Americans out of poverty and cut child poverty in half. That's 5 million children lifted out of poverty. Our plan would reduce poverty in the Black community by one-third, Reduce poverty in the Hispanic community by almost 40 percent. I look forward to, uh, to working with members of Congress of both parties to move quickly to get this American Rescue Plan to the American people.
4: So that sounds good.
2: Where are we at with that?
4: <laughs> so, well, basically he's saying that the $15 minimum wage is not going to be included in this rescue package. Um, yes. Um, okay. It's because Manchin has basically said he won't support it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, look, I'm gonna do a a weird defense of Biden here. Uh, I I think he's trying to get this bill out as soon as possible. Well, okay, here's the critique they should have just moved forward with reconciliation immediately and not tried to do this bipartisan dance. Then maybe we wouldn't be rushing so hard or so quickly to complete this bill before benefits expire in mid-March. And there's going to be a gulf, no matter what really in terms of what people are receiving from the federal government as some sort of subsidy and just help during the pandemic, which is desperately needed. So the urgency is there and that's why a $15 minimum wage with, multiple senators basically saying we're not going to support this and the kind of negotiation process that 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 would entail. Um, Yeah, I I understand not trying to tie this to the $1.9 trillion package, especially because it seems like Manchin right now, in order to maintain his bipartisan branding or as a, you know, I'm not beholden to either party. His vote against Neera Tanden signaled opposition to Biden, and now he's going to still support that $1.9 trillion deal, which is probably the best we're going to get out of that guy who um, is a, a bizarre figure. He's not as smart as Lieberman, which is lucky for us because we can manipulate him more. But it might have not been enough time in terms of lapsed benefits um, to get the $15 minimum wage in there. So like that's that's my defense in this area. But it should not be a question. Um <laughs> Uh, hopefully because it does deal with the um, budget as has been established by, um, thank you. Thanks guys. Uh, I saw that come up on the screen. Um, I love had- the
3: tips over here. Cause you know, yeah. no minimum wage increases. Com- <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, exactly. Just right. Like,
3: ben, ben pays a living wage. Don't worry.
4: There you go, Ben. Um, <laughs> but, but because it does deal with the budget, luckily they, they, because Republicans didn't use it in last fiscal year. They can tech, I think this um, reconciliation package is still in fiscal year 2019. or still can be used for that. I'm not exactly sure, but that might mean they can do a second reconciliation bill right after that. And that could be the $15 minimum wage. So I, I, if they don't pursue this at all after this $1.9 trillion package, I think lots of criticism needs to be heaped but I understand not putting it through in this just based on the urgency and the fact that there's going to be a lot of vote whipping needed. That takes a little more time.
2: I mean, what do you think? Uh, I mean, on the, the mansion thing, I mean, I understand there's no easy answer here. The last primary challenger against him was crushed. Uh, but I don't think that like paid people more money is actually unpopular in West Virginia.
4: Yeah. And that's the thing is, is like, I think given more time, um, he might have come around. I mean, we saw as soon as he said, I'm not going to support stimulus checks, the market tanked. And within two hours, he reversed his position to a different reporter. Um, Because Manchin, again, as I mentioned, um, he's kind of, we had to deal with Lieberman in the Obama era, who was like a way bigger ideologue in terms of like corporate Centrism and was beholden to industries like Wall Street in a way that Manchin isn't. Yes, Manchin is beholden to the coal industry and to fossil fuels and to other areas. But mostly what his project is, is branding himself as this kind of centrist renegade who can get elected in West Virginia. And that's a lot flimsier. And you can finagle that a lot more than somebody like Lieberman, who's bought off by the insurance industry, for example. So there's hope there. Um, and so I think there may be hope that there's a grassroots campaign behind the $15 minimum wage. I mean, we saw last week there were strikes in, I think, 15 cities throughout the country. Charlotte, St. Louis, um, different cities. I was, I was like, can I rattle off four of them off the top of my head? No, it's uh, 9 p.m. But um, but yeah, I think, uh, I, I think if you do have a significant campaign behind it, then maybe he could be swayed because we saw he was swayed on these checks, thankfully. All
2: right. Fair enough. Thank you so much, Emma.
4: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, Thanks for having me. And obviously Ben, love your show. Um, Ben and I uh, uh, became friends through Michael and uh, I love coming on your show, Ben, because it reminds me of Michael and um, you know, that, that so many great friendships sprouted from, from him and including ours. So I really appreciate it. And thanks for supporting so many great, um, great leftists. It's, it's, it's great to see. All right. Thanks, Emma. Appreciate uh, it. Bye for us.
2: All right. That was Emma Vigland uh, from uh, the majority report. Uh, really good to, uh, to see her again. It's, uh, it's been a while since, uh, since It's, she's been it's weird era. to
3: hear Emma Vigland from the majority report after uh, she was on like TYT for so long. and. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I've been—I don't
2: know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Ah, uh, so um, gonna bring on somebody uh, who has uh, not been on the uh, the show before, but uh, I'm excited to uh, to talk to, who is uh, Pascal Robert. Uh, we've talked to his uh, this is Revolution uh, co-host uh, Jason Miles before, but have not talked to Pascal before. Pascal, thank you for coming on.
8: No problem, Ben. Been a been a fan of your work and your show, and also the late uh, Michael Brooks as well, Forrest. Nice to talk to you. You too.
2: Yeah. So uh, I I don't want to. Uh, I you know I, I I promise this is the last time we'll uh, uh, you know we'll mention him uh, again on the show. But uh, but Forrest, uh, you know, do you have that uh, that clip of uh, of Rush Limbaugh talking? Uh, wanted to uh, wanted to get. Uh, Pascal's reaction to this. This is um, Which
3: one? every every racist yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, yeah,
2: this is on. this is this is Rush Limbaugh giving his uh, his thoughts uh, about uh, the uh, the history of the slave trade.
3: Here, hold on. I'm gonna, I have to pull it up. Here, just 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 riff for a minute. I just have to. I was about to say, this is
8: a great way to start off the show, man. Invite me on. <laughs> first thing you put on is Rush Limbaugh narrating about the history of the slave trade. I was about yeah, to say,
2: yeah.
8: what is it? Yeah. What's, what's Fox, there's, there's an...
0: A...
2: Yeah. Uh, well, the, uh, we're, we're going to subject you to Rush and their technical difficulties, so between the two, you know, we'll be lucky <laughs> if you come on again.
8: <laughs> uh, I know. It's, 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 we're already at a, you know, great it's, start. It's a
2: very low point here. <laughs>
8: That's right. <laughs> We get the. I don't see it. There it is. Got something on there.
1: ESPN and throughout the sports world over who can use the N word, when and how, and who can't, when and how. A little history lesson for you. If any race of people should not have guilt about slavery, it's Caucasians. The white race has probably had fewer slaves and for a briefer period of time than any other in the history of the world. No other race has ever fought a war for the purpose of ending slavery, which we did. That's actually a lie. Nearly 600,000 people killed in the Civil War. It's preposterous that
2: Caucasians are blamed for slavery when they've done more to end it than any other race. It's pre- Alright, so I'm surprised here. I'm hearing from Pascal that this is not an accurate description of history. No,
8: because because there's a, my parents are Haitian. There's a whole island of black people who fought a war to end slavery and they were Haitians and they also helped to give birth to the United States vis-a-vis the Louisiana territories. So I find it fascinating that, that Rush Limbaugh argues that quote-unquote white people did more to quote-unquote end slavery. I would argue that whenever white people took action to end slavery, it was because it fit into the larger project of the political economy of American and Western capitalism, which found that ending slavery was preserving something that was more effective to managing the quote-unquote project of American empire. So I don't buy into that, you know. I mean, my whole position is that on the quote-unquote white guilt, I'm not a fan of you know you know racial guilt or guilt trips or the white guilt thing i think because you know the notion of white guilt basically means that your whole premise in terms of demanding justice is based on emotional emotionality and my position is that quite frankly is that Uh, Racism is actually a a necessary element of capitalism because it reduces black labor to redundant surplus reserve army of labor because it's necessary to maintain the functionality in the mind of the majority of society that capitalism does not adverse them adversely, negatively. In other words, as, you know, even capitalists like Milton Friedman would admit, there is a, a, a natural rate of unemployment that is required in American society. And because America is a racialized society where the majority of the Americans are basically white, if they realize that disproportionately they were the numbers that fit into that space, it would cause rebellion. So in order to have that, this society function, you need to racialize that minority and the, the out minority is going to be black. And that's because that's one of the larger reasons why this is completely materialist. You guys are Marxist intellectuals. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know, this is basically why, you know, capitalism, you know, why in a capitalist society, certain groups of people, particularly one that has a certain racial labor component, you try to make the out minority the, the surplus redundant labor to keep the functionality of the system in the minds of the majority tra- traveling. So I don't think I'm telling you guys anything you haven't heard of, but, um,
2: no, but it's, yeah. an important, it's an important point. It's very well said. So, uh, and I mean, actually, I, I think one of the funny things about that Rush Limbaugh clip is that uh, he's um, is that he's doing this sort of uh, weird non-standard version of racial essentialism, where it's like it wasn't like the uh, the northern United States fought this war, you know, uh against uh against the southern planter class for their own, you know, for their own reasons, as you're saying. It's that the white race did that, you know, like right, you know. exactly.
8: And that's a very good point. Exactly. I mean he's playing his own kind of I mean the thing is as much as you know Rush would claim about identity politics, he's basically his whole his whole ethos is about white identity politics. It's about white racial reductionism. It's about, you know, reifying the existence of a collective white interest and that those brown and black people are coming here to, you know, to, 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 threaten your quote unquote sanctity. And that's why whenever I have people who are reactionaries talking about like how they threaten our culture, this culture, what, 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 what part of American culture has not been influenced by black and brown people? I mean, we eat pizza, you know, you know, we listen to soul music. We have R&B, we have rock and roll. Rock and roll was a black, a colloquial f- f- phrase for sex i mean you know well, the whole. Hold on,
2: the- well, well, well hold on i gotta stop you there pascal because i watch back to the future and at the uh at the end of the back to the future they established that it was michael j fox time traveling from the 80s that uh that started rock and roll so i'm, I'm pretty sure how that that's how that happened
8: yeah, well i mean i appreciate i mean i'm a back to the future fan as well but i mean the, the larger point is, is that whenever i hear these reactionary you know now, you know, uh, white race reduction is talking about how our culture, our standards, our, you know, this there's, there's not an element of, I mean, I mean, the food that we eat, what we call what is called soul food in the south, that's southern food. White people in the south eat it as well. Some of the things like, you know, grits, you know, uh, okra, uh, uh that stuff comes from Africa. I mean, this is infused in American and southern cult culture, and you know, and and to act like what we call american civilization or even western civilization as if the mathematical numerals we don't we use to count don't come from the arabic numeral system as if you know the middle east didn't contribute intellectually to the development or the exposure of greek philosophy to the europeans after the middle ages this notion that this concept of western civilization or american culture is this quote-unquote white thing when these people who created these civilizations didn't even refer to them as white is is part of the racial reductionist narrative that fulfills these racists like Jordan Peterson and these other people to think that somehow them as white men who feel that their space in America is being infringed upon because they have, might have to hear some Spanish at McDonald's when they're ordering their fries is a crisis of American society. So Rush Limbaugh, is his whole function is to play on that crisis and to increase the political tensions to make it see see those liberals and those leftists, they want to take your culture. They want to take your, you know, you know I mean? All he has to do is come one phrase away. Imagine if they're dating your daughter. I mean, you know.
4: Well,
8: <laughs> uh, I mean, at the same time, though, right? Uh, yeah. I, I'm not going to say Limbaugh was not without talent. Ta- Limbaugh, sure. was very, yeah. I mean, it's someone like yourself who spends a significant amount of time in media, podcasting, or doing YouTube. You understand it. This is not easy work. It's very tiring. It's draining. Doing a a show every day for three hours a day and maintaining an audience does not, you know, you you have to have a certain amount of skill to do that. It's just that his skill was based on, you know, fortifying a reactionary nationalist kind of narrative of what America is about and delegitimizing the claims of people who have traditionally been left out of the largesse that is American society and capitalism.
2: Stay
3: yeah, on that level of rage, right. too.
2: That level of, like, energy. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. Like, well, of course, I mean, I think with Limbaugh, he didn't have to, like, like somebody like Sean Hannity has to maintain three hours of outrage every day. Uh, you know, Limbaugh, you know, since a lot of his shtick was that he was, uh, you know, he was having a little fun with it. He was yanking the liberals' chains, you know, so he didn't have to be angry quite as much all the time. But, I mean, I'd, I'd absolutely take Pascal's last point. Again, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, Limbaugh was a really talented broadcaster, but of course, that doesn't make what he did better. It makes it you know worse or at least more dangerous. Absolutely,
8: actually, I think that one of the one of the failures of the left, right? I mean, there's there's always this I mean, this stereotypical kind of trope of like. You hear people on the left, from liberals to the left, because I I do believe in this distinction between liberals and the left. From the liberal flank of capital to the left, you hear those like, "Oh, the right wings, right wingers are such rubes. They're so stupid. They deny science. I mean, if they were so stupid and they were so ignorant, how would they be able, able to maintain the intellectual?" Framing of governance in American society during the what I call the 50-year counter-revolution—the last 50 years of America—has completely been tilted to their view of of, of uh, not only American uh, economic management, I would say, globally with the rise of Thatcherism and Reaganism and everything else. So I've always felt that the left underestimates the the effectiveness effectiveness of the right in areas of governance, in areas of uh, collective ideological consensus, in areas of propaganda, in areas of ideological management, and that, frankly, because uh, you know, if you believe there's a left, because one of my arguments is that there's actually no left in America at all, and there hasn't been in 50 years. I think we have have leftists, but leftists don't mean that you have a left.
2: Yeah, I've heard... uh... Uh, and Alfred says something similar that uh, that there's there's what maybe we will, uh, you know, if it takes off, we will say later, you know, like what will have been, you know, the left. Uh, but if uh, but what we have, you know, the sense in which we don't have a left is we don't have the kind of left that that ex- has existed in, you know, lots of countries, you know, during the 20th century uh, that had uh, roots of the working class, you know, which, which it was able to. Uh, intervene, you know, in its own name, uh, you know, in uh, you know, politically, like even having um even having a mass sort of, you know, mildly social democratic current in American politics is a fairly new development. I mean that's 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 really, you know, that's really 2016 uh onwards. Uh before that, uh, you know, you had as you say, you had leftists, you know, you, you had Noam Chomsky, you had whoever, uh, you know, in other words, you had people who were who are intellectuals, people who were, you know, media figures uh, who had more radical views, but to the extent that they ever actually got involved in uh, real politics, there just wasn't a lot of real politics that wasn't just a matter of essentially becoming a liberal once you entered into that sphere, because that's all there was
8: absolutely absolutely and uh, i mean I, I though i appreciate the development of the you know the democratic socialist phenomenon that comes along with occupy and evolves into the sanders phenomenon i still think that entryism as a port as the point of developing a left project is still problematic right because you know some people use the trope of the inside outside game that you have to have an inside game and outside i don't think you can have an at a left that, that depends on being a part of the Democratic Party. I think that what the left you know, basically is about, is about forcing through the use of movement politics, organized labor, and other, fa- other elements, the, the status quo to have to make concessions based on the fact that they disturb the normal functioning of empire, whether that's through protest or or disturbing the flow of capital. Now, one of my critiques of the left, and I made this comment uh, on another program, I think it was with Doug Lane, as a matter of fact, what we're talking about is that, because the left is so much based on oppositional politics, meaning de- critical deconstruction of, of the status quo, I think the left doesn't take governance seriously. That's kind of part of the problem. Con- I don't even think it's a problem. I think it's a conundrum, right? Because if, if your political you know, framework is to demonstrate what are the contradictions that exist in the society that is oppressive, then oftentimes that relegates you to being one that's on the outside that's actually pointing, but it doesn't give you the opportunity to build something, and that's part of my the problem, right? The left is not good at building things that can show people that this works. We're, we're very good at saying this doesn't work because it's X, Y, Z, but building things, whether they be political parties, whether they be actual social movements that are not really kind of relegated to being fr- Funded by the foundation world is not our expertise, right? And I think that that's 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 a problem that has not been rectified. I think there was a time in which the left was more effective. I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking about protect, you know, revolutionary leftists. I'm talking about military, you know, in terms of maybe during the early 20th century where we had, you know, rigorous labor movement. We had, you know, people challenging capital in more rigorous ways. But I think that part of the problem that we have with the contemporary left is that. First of all, it's not rooted in the working class. I think most of the left are kind of petite bourgeoisie, professional managerial class intellectuals, university-trained people who are sympathetic to the plight of the working class but actually don't socially or culturally represent them in any particular way. And that's problematic because, and I also think that there's this too much of this kind of, uh, 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 ideological firing squad and the left is like you know if you, or, or what they call the ideological purity test that if you don't buy into the particular ideological left you know project of you know oh I'm a Trotskyite or I'm a I'm an anarchist oh I'm a Sock or I you know I'm a Marxist Leninist or I'm a Maoist so that you know let me tell you regular working people don't want to hear that bullshit like no like no like they don't care it's a major major turnoff Quite frankly, and and, you know, until we try to—I mean, until we have a basic way of explaining to people as to why capitalism screws you over, and we can create economic models that are more humane to actually give people a better sense of equity in society. All of that, you know, and then I'm not trying to say theory is not important. Theory is important, but the 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 making that the the end as opposed to the actual. Practical reality of what needs to be done, I think, is a major fault line and a major problem we have in the American left overall. Maybe, I mean, I don't think it's it's as much in Europe, but definitely in the United States t- today.
2: Yeah, and and all that's, I mean, all that stuff that you're talking about, you know, the oh, I'm a uh, you know, I'm a Trotskyist, you know, I'm a anarcho, whatever, I'm you know, this or that. Like, it often feels to me, at least. Uh, like there's this element of, of, uh, of play act into it, you know, that people performative. Are, yeah, exactly. That, yeah. And, you know, cause, cause it's, cause it's a really strange exercise because people aren't really like when they're using these labels, they're not really, um, you know, orienting themselves towards some position on some controversy that's, that's going on right now. They're, they're not really talking about, you know, here's what we should do in the United States. Like that issue that you were talking about earlier, like to what extent can electoral efforts within the democratic party uh, be, uh you know, be, a you know, something that you know, that like uh, the left can strategically benefit from to what extent do we have to, you know, focus on the labor movement or like the Mike Davis thing, you know, we can't lose the streets. Like, like those are things that are positions on things happening in the class struggle in the real world right now. Whereas a lot of the rest of this stuff kind of tell like is feels like people it's like reenactment, you know, people saying like who they would have sided with in some faction fight in, you know, I don't know, like the Bolshevik Party of the 1920s or something like that.
8: No, that's a very good point. I mean, I agree with you that there is this kind of very kind of performative kind of and I think part of it is is like, you know, it's the new chic way. That university trained people show that they're smart. It's like, you know, I've read Marx's 18th Brumiere. Have you? Like, you know, it's the new hip. You know, when you know, I'm a little older, I'm somewhat older than you guys. You know, for my generation, I'm a generation X. You know, they didn't care about the left. For them, it was just like, how much money do you make? You know, and I think for the later generations, the millennials, it's more kind of like, well, you know, you know, how you know, how much do you know about, you know, you know, uh, you know, uh the common term or, or you know the paris commune or whatever, whatever you know arcane aspect of leftist history exists right and I, I make the joke with jason i was like listen if it wasn't for the 2008 crash most of these people will be looking at this stock dividends quite frankly because they, they probably wouldn't even be interested in this kind of stuff but uh you know at the same time not to be overly pessimistic and, ne- and pessimistic and negative as someone you know I was born in 1968, and I had to date myself. Uh, I remember, I, I, and part of that is, part of that re- rec- rec- realization makes me use that year as a, a, a major theme that I call the 50-year counter-revolution. And if you understand what I mean by the 50-year counter-revolution is that basically from the end of the period of the new left of the 60s with the rise of Nixonian kind of uh, reactionary politics, up until the modern era, Pretty much we have been living in a counter-revolution to the new left of the 60s, and that most of our politics has been a counter-revolution to that period. So when I say the 50-year counter-revolution, I'm talking about the majority of my lifetime. And what I one thing I can say is that since I realized how crappy most of the people my age have in terms of politics, there they have because of they grew up looking at Reagan as their, you know, as you know, their ideological kind of progenitor of what you know stable politics should be. I welcome the fact at least that there are younger people, younger than myself anyway, who are interested in a left project. As bad as it is, I can absolutely assure you the politics of the people who are a few years older than you guys are horrendous. I mean, they're absolutely I mean, there's a reason why if you look at most of these Fox News commentators, they're mostly Generation X, barring the older guys like Bill O'Reilly and even, the, you know, someone, but like, you know, Sean Hannity. I, I mean, people like Tucker Carlson, all of these guys come out of the you know, they're, they're all they're all children of the Reagan years. And I also would uh, uh, suggest to your audience, if they haven't watched it yet, I thought it was an excellent documentary. I'm sure Jason has mentioned with you, Showtime's documentary, The Reagans, Mm. particularly for younger people who may not actually remember the 80s. Uh, I was a teenager and a young adult in the 80s, so I remember it vividly. The Showtime documentary, The Reagans, I think you can get it on YouTube right now, is an excellent example of the sheer hypocrisy and just absolute bankruptcy of the Reagan presidency that does a very good job of talking about how this man, whose whole youth and young adulthood and first employment is based on, uh, 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 New Deal government largesse becomes a man whose whole presidency is based on saying, you know, it's, you know, government is not the answer. Government is the problem. I forget the exact quote. You guys have heard it before. Yeah,
2: yeah, uh, which is which is funny. I mean, you're you're talking about generations and uh, I, you know, I was I'm a little bit uh, older than Forrest, but my uh, I was born in uh, 1980 uh, and in uh, and the very first political conversation I can ever remember having in my life uh, was uh, I would have been four years old uh, 1984 and so I remember it would have been the morning after the 1984 election uh, because I remember going downstairs and I must have understood that there was something called an election that had just happened and somebody won somebody lost I remember going downstairs seeing seeing my dad read the newspaper at the table and saying oh who won and I just remember him curling his lip with this just look of utter disgust and contempt and saying Reagan uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it's not. Well, let me tell
8: you, that I mean that would mean that your dad had uh, some type of left inclination or liberal inclination. But I'll tell you right now, in 1984, Ronald Reagan won every single state in the United States except for Minnesota, which is the state I mean, that Mondale came from. I mean, I don't think people realize, I mean. First of all, I will say something, and this the the creator of that Reagan documentary actually admitted that in an article in the New York Times, that but for the rise of Donald Trump, that Reagan documentary would not have been made. And I told that to a friend of mine who was a contemporary of my age. And I told him, I said, the only reason this documentary is made is because of Trump. And he said, why? I said, because this documentary is about delegitimizing the right-wing project in the face of the horror of the Trump presidency. And I said, why do you think that? I said, listen, there is no way the right flank of capital would have allowed a documentary that desecrates Ronald Reagan to have been to been even remotely been aired in the society. Reagan is so functional, so fundamentally important to the right-wing project because we have to understand something. In the post kind of, in, besides going back to maybe Eisenhower, who was a liberal Republican, there is no presidential model for Republicans of success Besides Reagan, what do you have? Nixon. Nixon was impeached. You know, I mean, there's, you know, you, they they need they need Reagan, and that's why they they cling to him so much because for him he for them he is really the economy kind, of, kind of the 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 last successful embodiment. Of their ability to bring forth their kind of politics, and quite frankly, it changed the whole pro- political tra- trajectory of not only the United States but the world. Thatcherism comes about as well. You have, I mean, what's the favorite quote? The famous quote from Margaret Thatcher: uh, "My greatest achievement as, uh, as is Tony Blair was Tony
3: Blair, yeah. you know." Yeah, because it's not about who you, I mean, who you as a politician, how you change your own party. It's the, the shape that you leave the other party in.
2: Um, right. And, and certainly there's a parallel in the United States with Reagan. I mean, like when Reagan died in 2004, uh, the, uh, you know, the like that was during the 2004 election, you know, the Democratic candidate was John Kerry. And if you go back and look at what uh, John Kerry was saying about Ronald Reagan when Reagan had just died, I mean, it's it was like worshipful. You'd think that, you know. Oh, okay. man. Barack, what, who, who's Barack Obama's favorite president? I mean, who does he
8: praise all the time? He's always praising Reagan all the time, and I mean, I mean, the, obviously that demonstrates the, the, the sheer bankruptcy of the the liberal kind of neoliberal uh a uh, third way you know clinton clinton version of liberalism that comes about after
3: reagan but didn't, that obama, was, didn't obama also say i would have been a, i'm kind of like a reagan like my politics are where reagan's are i would have been yeah, like he, a, reagan democrat. a reagan
8: democrat yeah exactly exactly but i mean we have to understand right, what exactly was the third way project what was the dlc project what was the clintonian project the clintonian project was reconciling reaganism with liberal petite bourgeois, uh, management of empire with a with a patina of, of, I mean, the whole project was about effectively demonstrating to the lords of capital that as the left flank of capital, we can govern this and still allow you to make money and allow capitalism to flourish. Because all that left socialism stuff, we can throw it out the window. The Soviet Union is falling, and you know, let's go, let's make money. I, mean, you know, the we, we all remember Fukuyama, like the end of history. You know, the whole belief. You guys might be a little bit young, but the belief in the 90s was that, like, there was no need to even think about political economy, redistribution of resources, uh, uh, or, or, or or even Keynesianism. It was all about this kind of, like, neoliberal kind of marketization, financialization, and that was considered to be the new reality, the political consensus that would shape the world. I mean, it, it helped, It you know, even the Soviet, former Soviet Union was buying into it. And it wasn't until the Great Crash of two thousand eight that everyone is like, "Oh my God, this, this, this was was horrible. This is problematic." And then, of course, capital because it's it's very effective of protecting itself, it creates this psyop. First black president Barack Obama to give racial cover to the project of facilitating the greatest wealth transfer to the one percent since the Gilded Age. So you know, and then after that, we get you know the 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 the, the, the Trump phenomenon that has everyone. You know can we agree that I've we've never seen people we once respected lose their mind more than during the trump presidency oh, like yeah. everyone went absolutely like like bananas
2: no over- I, I mean I I'm not gonna name names but I mean there are there are friends of mine who who I used to talk about politics with you know more often and more enthusiastically who it was like they were almost lobotomized by the trump presidency you know they, they just sort of you know, they went from being people who had, you know, who seemed like, OK, maybe they were liberals in some ways, but, you know, they they had some sense of what was wrong, you know, with with a lot of mainstream liberalism to just sounding like, uh, you know, Rachel Maddow clones because, you know, Trump was such a evil clown. You know, he just had that effect on a lot of people.
8: I mean, he was a loathsome, loathsome, pre- I mean, loathsome president. Problematic. I don't want to get into the debate of whether Trump was a fascist. I was just watching a, a whole hour long video with Paul Street, who's kind of on the whole tear that like Trump is a fascist, and anyone who doesn't say that is part of the Trump and left, and blah blah blah, and so on and so forth. That's the that's, Yeah, yeah, that's
3: yeah. Quite yeah. A, that's quite a phrase. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean,
2: I, I, I mean, look, I mean, all I'll, cards on the table. Uh, I don't think he was. I also think that if uh, that it's a pretty significant a uh, sign of uh, of how loathsome somebody is if the big debate about that is whether they're technically and according to FOIL fascist or not.
8: Right. I mean, my whole position is this. is like, you know, I can, uh, and I, I'll be intellectually honest, is that uh, I didn't necessarily call Trump a fascist. I think he has reactionary nationalist tendencies. And I think my evidence that Trump is a reactionary nationalist is that Trump is actually a later star in a constellation of a global Western manifestation of reactionary nationalists that actually starts in Europe, right? You guys are savvy enough in terms of global politics. We have the we have Brexit, the rise of UKIP, Front National in France, we have Golden Dawn, we have the Five Leagues, so on and so forth. So Trump isn't even the first iteration of a politics that comes to be as a consequence of the, the austerity that Western countries lay upon their citizenry in the wake of the 2008 crash combined with the influx of immigrants that's caused by the turmoil in the middle east that brings forth brings forth the rise of reactionary nationalism trump is actually a later manifestation of trends that were going on in europe in the early arts He's followed by of course bolsonaro and even modi in india so what I'm saying is that I will totally concede that Trump is a reactionary nationalist and that there are aspects of his reactionary nationalism that on ethnic racial grounds are very disconcerting. And I will go as far to say that there may be fascistic potential. They, I mean, there are, they, he he does arouse high amounts of support in fascist elements within American society, my argument as to why Trump is not a fascist is a simple reason: he doesn't have the ideological discipline to be yeah. an effective
3: fascist. I like, I like the term proto-fascist because yeah. I, think that, I think that the elements were there, but I don't think that he ever had the ability to put them into a like into into use as a fascist. Movement. I mean,
2: cer- certainly, I let you know, yeah. I mean, they uh, you know Pascal's uh, you know thing about discipline. It reminds me of the uh, uh, I remember the Matt Taibbi line from a while ago when, when people were talking about whether Trump was going to do like a military coup to stay in power. And uh, Taibbi said, well, uh, I don't I don't think Trump would have like a moral objection to doing a military coup. I just think within the first five minutes of talking about the logistics with his generals, he would get bored and go off and watch television. Uh, and and that that's certainly, um, you know, there's certainly a ring of truth there. Uh, but I want to go back to what you're saying earlier about the uh, the long counter-revolution, uh, and uh, you know that that 50 year you know counter-revolution, and I, I think that um, you know because you said what it was a uh, what it was a revol- counter-revolution against uh, was the uh, was the new left uh, in the uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, since I, I wanted to uh, play for you. Uh, a couple days ago, um, I watched a movie. I, I know you've also seen uh, *Judas and the Black Messiah* uh, with uh, Forrest, with your your co-host uh, Jason, uh, and with uh, with our graphic designer uh, J. Andrew World. And there's a um, and uh, your name came up came up during our uh, our discussion of it. So I want you to show the clip and we can talk about it.
3: So going so going further, I guess with my with my through line um, into the two things they kind of set Fred Hampton up, and and they never really decide on what on what he is. But there's like a liberal conception of the Black Panthers in general, which is like either really skilled community organizers doing things like you know building hospitals and uh and and kind of making like giving eating people practice. yeah or or like you know uh, not Kill whitey yeah like 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 either either that or like like gun toting like street gorilla and. It never quite reconciles those two visions.
2: Okay, but I mean, devil's advocate, like some of that's because of the contradictions in the actual original group, right? I mean, like, like like they, I think to some extent, I mean, not that, you know, I wouldn't say liberal community organizers, but I mean, like, like they actually did do all of those things. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not
3: saying any of it's wrong. I'm just, um, Saying they seem to lean really, really far in one direction with like shots of the the, the the Panthers marching in formation, like you know what I mean, like like kind of almost like ominous shots. It's or, it's a, or the, or he's like he's like I gotta feed everybody and, and give them breakfast, and it's kind of like these things are. I'm not saying that they're they're both true, like.
9: But it's a I mean? Holly, it's a Hollywood film though, right? We have to yeah, keep in mind. But yeah. Pascal calls it the Great Awakening, right? He was talking about the Great Awakening, <laughs> and and there's been like this back and forth he's been having with Adolf. Uh, uh, read, not an argument at all, just a conversation. You said Adolf um, a second, and I was like, well like, uh, <laughs> uh, Yeah, no, not <laughs> yeah, Adolf, you know? but Adolf, uh, read. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we all, Torey and Cedric and I all have this thing about the, the Great Awakening. And I think this movie kind of sits in a certain lane in the Great Awakening As we come off uh, an era, a, a COVID era of George Floyd protests and, and, and as you know i'm keeping to keep quoting brother pascal uh is black politics the politics of containment and we kind of point to this movie and go "Mm, yeah kind of sorta because this go go ahead so
2: no i was just gonna ask if you wanted to uh uh explicate that a little bit what that means by politics is the politics.
9: of <clears throat> I mean, it's kind of been a question we've been asking for the last few weeks uh, on the show, and even in our own personal conversations, um, that, uh, <laughs> that 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 some of these that some of these uh, figures that come out, and even movies like this. The first thing Pascal said to me after we watched it, he goes, "Does this movie make you want to start an organization like the Black Panthers?" And I was like, "No, not at all." <laughs> it doesn't make me want to do anything revolution it doesn't make me want to go pick up the communist manifesto it doesn't make me want to try to find out who Marx or Lenin is it doesn't make me want to do any of that no you know what it makes me want to do it makes me want to buy a t-shirt that has some ill ass slogan on it and it makes me want to be mad at the police because that's ultimately what a lot of these politics are about when we talk about BLM it, it, I'm mad at the police, but I don't really know what I want to do about it. And I'm going to have a slogan like defund the police. That sounds good, but what is it really about? Hmm. And I'm not saying I want more cops. I'm not saying I I want police officers to to um, always show up at, at mental health episodes, but from someone that actually worked in an environment with several mental health episodes and had to deal with the police or not deal with the police, defund the police doesn't understand that if you're not trying to change people's material conditions, what are you really going to have once you defund the police? Right. Here we are in Oakland, California, where there was a big push or here who I am, Oakley, I have a big push to defund the police and some of the people that were behind the movement are like, well, please don't fire any cops because crime is up and these motherfuckers are shooting. So, when you're not trying to change people's material conditions, when you're not trying to change the way we society truly looks at things like poverty, mental health, then you can defund all you want, but you're going to have a series of other New problems that you're not looking at, like okay, where do these counselors come from? A private company? Is there any government oversight? Have you guys spent five fucking minutes inside of a facility that's some sort of nonprofit that hires people? In the great words of Donald Trump, you're not getting their best. Wow, I'm impressed that Jason was. Is he? I mean, that brother's
0: eloquent, man. Wow. (laughs)
2: yeah yeah that no, was a really good dis- uh, discussion it's it's been great having uh jason on the show but so you have uh, a podcast or something that
3: yeah that, we uh, i happen to work with that
8: guy
2: you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough uh so I, I guess i should have set this up a little bit more before uh before we watch this so for for anybody you know you could see a uh, previous episode uh, it all blurs together like a week ago i th- i want to say uh where we we talked a little bit uh more about or two weeks ago but anyway uh we talked uh, we talked a little bit about this stuff then but just to to quickly recap right for for anybody who's watching this who's not familiar with some of this history and, and who hasn't seen this movie yet uh so judas and the black messiah is about um, uh fred hampton uh this uh, black panther leader in chicago uh, who uh, was assassinated uh, by the FBI and the cops uh, and uh, in a really bad way like he was you know asleep in bed uh, and he was and crucially um, that one of the things that he was doing to to raise the ire of the authorities was uh, organizing this rainbow coalition between the Black Panthers, this Puerto Rican group, the Young Lords uh, and this, uh, this this white radical group, uh the Young Patriots. Uh and Judas and the Black Messiah is is a movie that is, as the name indicates, it's it's very much about the FBI informant uh who uh, who ended up um uh who you know helped them uh kill him essentially uh you know he's he's the uh, he's the Judas figure uh in this equation and uh you know, in a lot of ways, you know, it's, as Jason was saying, it's a Hollywood movie. It's, 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 you know, has a lot of the rhythms of, you know, of a Hollywood gangster movie. Uh, The focus is on the personal relationships between these people, but it does accurately depict um, a a lot of, uh, a lot of Hampton's politics. You see him critiquing cultural nationalism. You see him, uh, you see him talking about how it doesn't matter what color the capitalists are. You know, they're all, you know, they're all exploiting us. We need to unite against them. Uh, Those things are all there. They're just not the focus of the movie.
8: Right. I would agree with that. I mean, I I, I mean, I think that there is a, a rudimentary exposition in terms of what the Black Panther Party was about in their politics. But I I, I basically believe that that is secondary to the action scenes of the guns, of black people in leather, you know, you know, fight the man, fight the man. And, you know, William William O'Neill being the snitch slit centered and look at FDR, you know, the evil white. I mean, you um, know, proof of the evil white man. I think that it it kind of turns into a kind of certain kind of caricature of an organization, and my editor at uh, at Black uh, Black Agenda Report, Bruce Dixon, was a member of the Chicago Black Panther Party that actually had a much more kind of uh, important you don't really get a sense and understand that they were a Marxist-Leninist organization that challenged capitalism. Yes, you get a kind of a patina of that, but it was a very strong part of what their politics, they were revolutionary na- nationalists. They used guns as self-defense against the police. And, uh, you know, they were very influenced by the uh, the the, the uh, eventual evolution of Malcolm X to evolving into a revolutionary socialist kind of uh political formation. And they also formed allies with much of the the white radical left that existed at that time. But one of the things of the film that I found very problematic, it didn't demonstrate how the war in Vietnam was a very instrumental part of why they were important, how much they challenged American imperialism, uh, particularly around Vietnam at their era. The gender, how they had uh, relatively progressive gender politics is actually kind of demonstrating that they had women in higher in in uh, positions of hierarchy but it was definitely uh uh what the american ruling class probably viewed as the most problematic manifestation of uh black left politics during the 60s, I think part of the problem that is actually the case, and you even see this with members of of the black community as well, is that the narrative of good civil rights movement, bad civil rights movement is very common in that the traditional kind of nonviolent MLK, uh, you know, march and protest, Selma, Selma, Birmingham, Montgomery, was the good part of the civil rights movement. And then when you get to black power and the black Panther party, that was the bad part. And even Clinton in a recent, in the, in uh, the eulogy of, of uh, 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 Georgia uh, Senator John Lewis was like, "See, we almost lost it when Stokely Carmichael came around, but thanks to John Lewis, we were able to keep it under control." So even Clinton, as you know, as kind of horrific as a figure that he was, is trying to play this kind of good civil rights movement, bad civil rights narrative by saying that you know when Stokely came around with that Black Power stuff, it, the movement kind of got out of control, you know. And there are ways to criticize Black Power as well. I mean, I have a a kind of left, class-based criticism of Black Power. But ultimately, for Bill Clinton, who has always been a kind of like you know, you know the the a horrible figure in terms of some of his policies vis-a-vis Black Americans from mass incarceration to you know a variety of others, to talk about how he feels the he has the luxury to to chastise. Black people about their own movement history. It was like y'all, y'all messed up when you did that. See, and I was like, you know, I mean, you got some really, really nerve, really serious nerve. I mean, you know, Stokely Kwame Touré, who was known then known as Stokely Carmichael, was a, a was an avid revolutionary socialist, Pan-Africanist, who had very, very sharp and critical analysis of American uh, imperialism, American racism. Was dedicated member of SNCC. Uh, organized uh, several marches and several voting rights camps, voting campaign, registration campaigns, to get people mobilized and try to work in the tradition of the quote-unquote non civil rights movement. And when black people throughout the country, particularly in the Northeast, were getting their heads beaten by cops and the material benefits of that movement were starting to atrophy, and you see the urban rebellions develop, I actually argue that the Black Panther Party is a reflection of the the, the political crisis that was happening in terms of what was going on in the urban areas in terms of Black America. Let's not forget that the rebellions actually start in 63, metastasize and continue to grow going on to 66, from 67 to 71, you have over 300 urban rebellions all over the country. So for me, uh, the Black Panther Party is actually a reflection of how the, the limits of the policy of the civil rights movement were not adequately being streamed into the urban areas and that black people were, were reacting, particularly to the presence of an occupying force, which were the police, and they were actually reacting to that, to that politics on the ground. And that kind of, you know, that kind of history is not something you're gonna get in a two hour Hollywood production. You know, the context of how these things come about. And you know there is a, a you know there is to to get to Jason talking about how this film fits into the you know the Great Awakening, which is a quote that Adolf Reed uses as a matter of fact to talk about how racial you know quote unquote racial grievance discourse is being uh, supported by the ruling class and by capital in America today. You have all of this all of this funneling of resources. To uh, to Black Lives Matter, you have Jamie Dimon talking about the racial wealth gap and taking a knee. You have all of these uh, cultural, uh, pop cultural productions being financed on Netflix and all this other stuff. So you know we see the that the liberal establishment is, you know, financially buttressing all of this kind of racial grievance discourse, and you know you would think that what was coming to some kind of you know great racial awakening, some people talking about the the, uh, the third reconstruction and I'm actually, you know, I, I actually think it's a very cynical ploy on the part of the ruling class to encapsulate a black kind of political thought for a two part narrative. One, part of it was to delegitimate the Trump presidency and the reactionary nationalism that he represented on, on a kind of racial grounds, but it effectively did, effectively did with the 22 election. And two, in a more cynical fashion, to delegitimize the class based agenda of the new developing kind of left liberal social democratic. Call for class-wide, you know, federal jobs guarantee, Medicare for all, and put a racial grievance and particular things like uh, uh, racial wealth gap, uh, 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 reparations on on the front burner because capital realizes that it can only it can always manipulate the amount of resource allocation to black politics by catering to the black professional managerial class or the black political class which was always going to be the arbiter of the way in which black politics comes about so when you ask what it means to say black politics is a politics of containment or black politics is a class politics that doesn't respect that doesn't reflect the class of the majority of black people it's a politics of containment in that it creates the notion of a unified authorization of Black people who are contained in this kind of unitary force that is having their politics negotiated for them by a, an elite amongst them that is actually what in international politics would be a comprador a class. They actually work at the behest of the ruling class in exchange for patronage, position, and, and economic and socio-economic comfort while actually not legitimately affecting Policy that works to the benefit of the majority of black and brown people who are working class or poor. So that's why we're saying that black politics is a cat is a is is a, is, a, is a captured politics or politics of containment, that it's a brokerage politics. And fact you have you have no one else has a leadership class. No one has who is the black leader for the Me- who's the Mexican leader? Who's the Jewish leader? Who's the Italian leader? There's always about well you know you know every urban regime you know well we got to get the black leader of the day who's you know who's the uh, the Jewish American version of Al Sharpton it doesn't exist it's never existed and existed and this is a particular type of very very. Uh, noxious leadership paradigm that goes back into the 19th century, going back to Booker T. Washington, that has plagued Black America. And sadly, because of this fallacy of racial kinship politics, with this notion that you're know, like, we all in this together against a man, you don't talk bad about a Black man, very few Black people are willing to expose because they feel that. We are in this ontological kind of Star Wars death battle against Whitey that makes us unable to expose those amongst ourselves that are selling us out. So it's kind of a conundrum that creates this kind of illusion of collective interest that works to the at the behest of the ruling class, you know, getting people to do, you know, you know, say, ooh, Chucks and Pearl, Chucks and Pearls when they see Kamala Harris, or you know, shout out to Obama for decimating 50% of black wealth under this illusion of kind of you know racial. Entryism into the ruling class when those people are compradors themselves who work at the behest of the cor- of the corporate elite and really don't give a damn about poor and working class Black people. So when we say it's a, a containment, it, it basically is based on that kind of illusion of, of unitary interest that really works for racial management.
2: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, uh, and I, I think that the uh, the point you know about the um, you know we call it like that. Comprador class, you know, uh, and, you know, goes into, uh, the, the very important point you made earlier about, uh, how, you know, most, well, again, you know, we can argue about whether we even have a left yet, but, you know, with the leftists, uh, tend to come from, uh, maybe, you know, maybe downwardly mobile sections of, but, you know, basically what's sometimes called the professional managerial class, uh, which, um, you know, which whatever. I mean, this is not, you know, this is not personal. I'm I'm you know, clearly, you know, I clearly, you know, come out of that, right? You know, no, no like uh but it's but the problem is uh you know I, I think if you want to make yourself useful you kind of have to it's almost like the uh Anton Chekhov thing about you know squeezing out the surf inside yourself sort of have to squeeze out the. Uh... A Bill
8: called Capra called it class suicide. You must be willing to to commit class suicide to be able to uh, advocate for you know the the masses is if you come from that from that class. Now, listen, I mean my my position is that that someone who comes from the middle class can't be an advocate for transformative social change. What I'm saying is that people who are in certain certain positions will. Act out their class or their material interest in terms of how they view the world.
2: Yeah, and how they view the world is really important here because uh, you know, because I, I think to try to you know connect a couple of dots really quickly before we do the Haiti stuff, uh I think that um you know there there is this even a lot of people who I think have good leftist ideas to a certain extent, uh they because they're coming out of this world where up until the last few years, like we were talking about earlier, basically what existed in real world politics was, you know, the right and, you know, liberalism. That was it. And so, and in particular, the kind of liberalism that we have now uh, is one that is entirely defined by entirely, uh, you know, sort of filtered through the, the, the preoccupations, the interests, the concerns of the professional managerial class. So, uh, what, you know, like what racial justice means from that perspective is having a more internally diverse ruling class, uh, that, you know, because, because it's, it's, if, if you're defining your politics in terms of people who, uh, are centrally see the world and see social injustice as anything that blocks, uh, educational and career striving, uh, then you, you, that's what you see, you know, racial justice or gender justice or other things as, uh, is making it easier for the, you know, the so-called cream of the crop, you know, in each group to, uh, to rise to the top, which definitionally leaves most people exactly where they are.
8: Right absolutely no I, I i agree with you is that it becomes uh about democratization of the elites as opposed to redistribution of power and wealth and access to to, to capital and, and uh and uh quality of
2: life all right, before uh before pascal goes let's uh let's show him some of the uh, the haiti clips and talk about that a little bit all right so this is this is a
3: clip that i was listening to the um interview that you guys did on haiti the other day and jason played this so i wanted to start off with it it's the uh the biden in
5: 1994 one. <laughs> if, haiti, if haiti just quietly sunk into the caribbean or rose up 300 feet it wouldn't matter a whole but lot in terms it of our-
8: yeah, Biden saying if Haiti sunk into the ground three hundred feet or rose up, it wouldn't matter. It, you know, it's amazing how you know tell that to the Clinton Global Relief Foundation, tell that to Bill and Hillary Clinton, how unimportant Haiti was, and why exactly did they spend so much of their capital, energy, and and, and personal resources on Haiti?
3: That that perfectly cues up uh, this one. <laughs> enterprise and so, and so,
1: so many, many like Mr. It's, it's a criminal enterprise. Uh, Saudi Arabia giving $25 million, Qatar, all of these countries. You talk about women and women's rights? So these are people that push gays off off buildings. These are people that kill women and treat women horribly, and yet you take their money. So I'd like to ask you right now, why don't you give back the money that you've taken from certain countries that treat certain groups of people so horribly. Why don't you give back the money? I think it would be a great gesture. Well, because she takes a tremendous amount of money, and you take a look at the people of Haiti. I was in a little Haiti the other day in Florida. And I want to tell you, they hate the Clintons, because what's happened in Haiti with the Clinton Foundation is a disgrace. And you know it, and they know it, and everybody knows Secretary it. Secretary Clinton. Well,
5: very quickly, we um, at the Clinton Foundation spend nine... <laughs>
3: I don't, think, I don't think her response is important. I just wanted to play the part of... Uh, Trump. Well, let me
5: tell
8: you right now, uh, Trump is correct. There are large segments of the Haitian community who violently, I won't say violently, but they who heavily despise the Clintons because of their, their role. I mean, let's make this clear. Bill Clinton's particular rice policy of making sure that subsidized Arkansas rice Flooded the Haitian market, so destabilized Haitian domestic rice production that you had poor Haitian people who literally had to make dirt sandwiches to eat. That's a fact. Okay. So subsequently, he apologized in front of the congressional committee. I have to take responsibility for that. I mean, do you take responsibility for the structural readjustment packages that you made President Aristide sign onto in 19, in the nineteen ninety five when you brought him back to office that completely sold off the state assets of the Haitian government, like Teleco, In other words, to some of your own Clinton acolytes, do you take credit? Do you take responsibility for that? Does Hillary Clinton take responsibility for the fact that her brother was sitting on an over $20 billion worth gold mine, in which he was a a, 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 a proprietor of, in which he was able to make contracts and and extract resources from? Okay. I, I was not a Clinton supporter because I said publicly, I said, I will not support the Clintons because they have been using Haiti as their personal ATM machine for too long.
2: Yeah, so so do you want to go go into just a little bit in case uh, some people might be watching this or listen to it later who aren't familiar with that history, the, particularly the uh, the part about the foundation.
8: Well, I mean, the foundation was—I mean, the the Clinton Global Relief Foundation was not set up exclusively for Haiti, but it was set up as a kind of, uh, you know, global NGO that helped, you know, in a liberal frame, a crisis management of hotspots in the world. In which capital will be funneled by international elites under the guise of kind of helping humanity, you know, stopping the you know the poor from starving, et cetera, et cetera, cetera, so on and so forth. But what it became in Haiti was kind of a means for which the Clinton's after the earthquake to receive funds and donations from international collaborators under the guise of repairing the country after the earthquake. And instead of effectively doing that, challenging that money and their resources into their pockets and leaving much of the Haitian infrastructure lacking in its ability to, to recover from the earthquake. And, you know, they signed multitudes of contracts. One of the perfect examples is the gold mine with Hillary Clinton's brother. You know, Bill Clinton is a is 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 a great fan of the ola- Haitian oligarchy that basically contr- is you know, what we call the Haitian one percent, which uh, you know uh uh, uh controls over ninety nine percent of the resources while people are living in abject poverty. These guys are multimillionaires. They all have American passports. They they can create a coup d'état at the drop of a phone call if they wanted to, and oust the president if they need to. And they you know when you when a Bill Clinton goes to Haiti, whose house do you think he's staying? in? And he's staying with them, so it's it's probably. It's I mean, most Americans don't know how absolutely vile and disgusting the relationship the Clintons have with Haiti is. I suggest people to to do their researches. There are too many sources now to even go into. Uh, to I can imagine. I mean, that you can uh, use to 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 read about read about this. I mean, one of the things that I found particularly vile is that Hillary Clinton was actively trying to hide a UN report that exposed that the United States, Nations uh, was dumping feces into uh, a Haitian river in Artibonite that so polluted the river that it brought a cholera epidemic to the country. And she actively, while working in the Obama administration, worked to to to, to neutralize people from making that, that information public. Not only that, as Secretary of State, she fought ar- you know, arduously to stop a bid to increase the rather pauperous Haitian minimum wage, that was so—I mean, it was laughing—it was laughingly low—but she, on at the behest of sweatshop uh, labor uh a manual of factory owners in Haiti, which she, I'm sure she had relationships with, was working to suppress so that people couldn't even have what would be barely not even
2: a living wage according to any third world standards. So I mean I you yeah, know I think that that what you're talking about, the WikiLeaks revelation about the State Department lobbying Haiti against raising the minimum wage, if I'm remembering right, the proposed raise minimum wage that they backed off of would have been about five dollars a day.
8: Yes, something something to that effect. So, I mean, I, I mean, there the, there are there are too many uh, uh, ways in which the interface of the Clinton the Clinton family has been noxious with the Republic of Haiti, but it's part and parcel of the rather hostile relationship the United States has had from Haiti with its inception. For your audience who's not familiar, Haiti is the first country or first Republican in the history of the world that was able to get its independence from a successful slave revolt. In 1804, the country became independent and immediately upon its independence, instead of getting Credit as the United States did from European countries, it was slapped with a massive embargo, wasn't even recognized by the United States in the 1820s. France, under the threat of military attack, forced uh, an, an indemnity on Haiti that in the, what is equivalent today to $25 billion that was not completely paid until 1947. In 19
2: which, 19- which which is really worth, by the way, pausing to underline and circle that. Like how like what we're talking about here, this this indemnity wasn't paid until 1947 was about compensating France for losing gaining their freedom, the lost, yes. the lost property in human beings.
8: Yes, absolutely. That is correct. Uh uh so so uh, the west because the i the count the, the notion of uh, of of black men and women having freedom in the 19th century was so noxious to the world even though Haiti through its liberation effort gave 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 and support to simon bolivar to help liberate you know protect 10 to 15 countries in south america from, you know in the the bolivarian revolution which hugo chavez till his dying day, give Haitians credit for, not to mention the fact that you had the uh, the Louisiana territories were sold by France to the United States after Napoleon had the intentions of using t- over 50 or 25,000 soldiers that were staked out in, in Louisiana to invade North America after he defeated the Haitian soldiers, but because the Haitian soldiers so. Sold adequately vanquished him. He had to send them to Haiti. That fact basically saved the United States from becoming pretty much a French colony because they had more soldiers than the North American continent overall combined. And what Napoleon did in order to cover his losses is that he sold uh, all the Louisiana territories, which doubled the size of the United States, helped make America the empire that it is, the breadbasket of America is, and sold that land to the United States for something like eight cents an acre all under Jefferson, who Jefferson then thanked Haiti by giving them an embargo under the first, first leader of the Republic, which was Jean-Jacques Dessalines. So the United States, the West, and Haiti has had you know, uh, a rather, rather, rather Difficult war role to go. I mean, you know the the vile kind of terminology you read in any kind of New York Times article when you talk about Haiti's the poorest country in the hemisphere. But never talks about exactly how much the West is complicit in making in making Haiti poor. From 1915 to 1930 to 1934, the United States occupied Haiti, Haiti extracted money from its treasury to from the from because Citibank was taking gold for the country as a part of its control of the fiscal uh, currency manipulation of the society since I mean, some would argue, and I would say that Haiti hasn't had full sovereignty since the U.S. occupation, because every Haitian, Haitian president that's been in power since that occupation pretty much goes through the State Department, including the noxious uh, dictator Francois Duvalier, which was a Cold War who was basically much, pretty much a Cold War asset of the United States and was used to make sure that communism be- didn't become popular on the country. So Haiti is a country that does not... Uh, exists in terms of being "quote unquote" poor without the help of the machinations of the United States and the left, and all of this is, of course, because the idea of Black and Brown people being free is so noxious to uh, many of the global empires of the world then, and maybe perhaps even today.
3: And still, the the poorest country narrative is is like you know used as like a well, look when people are given their own self determination, their own independence, look you know look what happens to that country. Eventually.
8: Oh yeah, it works. You know, it's about the importance of models of failure you know it's, it's important to empire to say well, look what we you know. We give these Negroes; they govern themselves. They they becomes a banana republic, you know. Not to, you know, no one talks about what exactly is the relationship with the former empires that govern these places that helps facilitate them being able banana. How many how many assassinations has France you know participated in on the African continent of leaders who tried to give it self determination and prove that? How many comprador elites are studying at European universities that are being financed to make sure they help suppress those governments? How many you know how many times are structural adjustment programs being implemented or neoliberal economic paradigms being implemented in these countries to make sure they don't have any economic development. So it's, it's kind of a, a tragic tale that, uh, you know, uh, uh, demands much more awareness. And I'm really glad you guys asked about this because I like to give the opportunity to the burgeoning left of, in America to develop a more kind of global South analysis of the way in which American and Western Empire influenced these countries and let them know that, you know, I believe that if we're going to be socialists and leftists, we have to make this part of our critique and analysis of how American capitalism and international finance capitalism works to be effective, you know, socialists and leftists. That's part of our tradition. And I don't think we should run away from it under the guise of saying, who we're just we're going to get a new deal and everything will be okay we won't criticize the american empire <coughs> sanders supporters. but i mean but uh i'm you know i'm not casting aspersions you know i'm just you know i'm just uh saying that i i appro- applaud you guys for allowing to even broaching the question about haiti on your program
2: yeah i mean look i i think uh you know i i mean i'll You know, cards on the table, you know, was and would be again, you know, very enthusiastic, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders supporter, but that doesn't mean that there aren't, uh, that there aren't limits to that project that you can criticize and push, you know, and and I think certainly the uh, question of anti-imperialism is, uh, is one of them that there are, um, that um, which is
3: a much harder question. than than a domestic policy question, because you can kind of, I mean, you can kind of make gains in in domestic policy, you know, um, on the ground, in in Congress and the Senate, and it's like a kind of, you know, it's like a one, like, these are much bigger, these are much bigger, like, things that we don't feel like we have necessarily control over, because the military and foreign policy state is kind of so insular. Um, I mean, I think that we should talk about it, but it is like, it's, it's like, when, when, when a lot of younger leftists, especially kind of, focus on the domestic i think it's i I think that's a big reason
2: yeah well and i I think it feels more uh imaginable maybe uh in some ways that you know that you could you know have some kind of level of return of new deal politics then that you could have alternatives to the u.s dominated uh global order uh that you know i mean it's it's hard to get a lot of people to even imagine the first thing, but, you know, like the second thing, especially and I think actually on the subject of Sanders, I think if you look at how mild his, you know, his dissents for the foreign policy consensus were uh, and how big a deal those extremely mild dissents were, you know, that that tells you something about the uh, the terrain Um you know, that just saying like, you know, Henry Kissinger is not my friend, and you know. Uh... No, I
8: mean, I think Sanders came a long way. I think in twenty, in twenty, you know, I mean, I, I, I felt that Sanders' campaign in twenty sixteen was important because you know it gave the opportunity to open the over to expand the Overton window and open the opening window and expand, uh, op- expose a large segment of American society to a to concepts of socialism. I know he's more of a Keynesian, but the the fact that I mean. Particularly, you know, as old as I am, growing up in the Reagan years, the fact that he was he openly admitted to being a socialist, or at one time being a socialist, I think was very important for those people who were still leftists to use that opportunity to educate people as to why our politics are important, and you know, I I think it is good. That Sanders caused the generation of Americans. Some of them from middle class backgrounds. Some of them doing it because you know the economic 2008 crash made their employment opportunities a little sparse. Some of them because they were burdened with student loans. It made them re you know analyze the problems with American capitalism. That hasn't happened in 50 years. I also think that the American ruling class found that to be a profound threat, and I think that it, it, it it's still a part of its project to neutralize that politics and that movement. And I think Joe Biden is actually president because that is part and partial part of his project, is to neutralize that politics and neutralize that movement. I was just saddened that Uh, The liberal elite shattering class, particularly certain black members of the liberal elite shattering class, were very effective in the canard of painting left Politics as a white thing, and causing many people who tended to be black liberals to say, "While y'all dealing with that Bernie thing, Bernie's a socialist, or he doesn't care about reparations, or, or even the most comical is like compared to Hillary Clinton, Bernie's a racist. Compared to you know the mother of mass incarceration, Bernie Sanders is a racist a guy who you know marched with Martin Luther King. I mean, give me a break." If we want to use the term, quote unquote, white supremacy, who has been more effective in, in maintaining the hegemony of white supremacy in terms of global power, the Clintons or Bernie Sanders? I mean, if we want to use that term, I mean, give me, you know, it's it's, it's absolutely absurd. So I was not, you know, some of my co- my comrades on the black left were a little bit more circumspect about Bernie, and I think that that was a mistaken opportunity. Even, I didn't sign on to Bernie because of the imperialism question. At Black Agenda Report, some of our cadre were a little bit more critical of him, but I felt that there was an opportunity to at least, first of all, fight that part of the liberal establishment that was trying to paint socialism and left politics as white was something I think the black left should have taken on and shut down hands down. And I think we're still, we we still we still should. Some of us did. Cedric Johnson, Tory Reid, Adolf. I think that they tried to do that, but I would have liked to see more. And and also. Take the opportunity to educate people, particularly more African Americans, about how listen. Black left tradition goes back to the you know the populist era, the Colored Farmers Alliance, Lucy Parsons, you know, uh, you know Hubert Harrison, you know the Black Communists and Socialists of the early nineteenth, early twentieth century, uh, slave rebellions, if you will. I mean, you know, you know, Black politics rooted in challenging capitalism, imperialism, sexism, and racism is part and part parcel of the the Black. Political tradition in American society. And the fact that we had people like Joy Ann Reed and, you know, what's his name, Jason Johnson, the political scientist, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who were sadly effective in painting that politics as a white phenomenon is part of the reason, quite frankly, why Jason and I do what we do. The This is Revolution podcast project is partly about exposing and introducing to black. Black, brown, and white audiences. The fact that Black left politics is over a century years old in the United States and should not be alienated from the contemporary African American community. So that's kind of the, one of the things that we try to make our our mantra at this is Revolution podcast. And there
3: was there was a moment when Hillary Clinton in two thousand sixteen said that quote about um, you know breaking up the big banks won't stop racism. Um, what that should have like that could have been a, a, a very like an incredibly inspiring moment for leftists to point out that you know that the financialization of our entire society and the world really has uh you know completely crippled um you know black and brown communities.
8: Thank you so much for bringing it up. I mean, this sh- first of all, can we say? Do you understand how devious of a statement it is for Hillary Clinton to say? breaking up the banks, won't stop racism. Let's understand the amount of cognitive realization that that went into her making that statement. Number one, she's making that statement because she realizes that banking, finance, and capitalism are integral parts of black oppression, right? So, So she's not saying it because it's true. She's saying it because she knows it's not true.
3: And because you know a Clinton policy would pour uh, tons of money into like economic development zones in, in in black and brown communities, which don't actually like the money doesn't filter down to individuals. No, like, it
8: becomes it becomes. Uh, as a friend of mine says it becomes a, a wealth transfer to the black political class in, yeah. in many ways, in many
3: many ways. Oh, and, also, and then so you oh, get it's,
2: yeah. it's also just like a weird statement, like okay. So uh, breaking up the big bags will do that. What is the policy that will end racism? I mean, if if that's what we're talking about, like like like, what's what what, what was the Hillary Clinton plan to end racism?
3: Canceling the will, right people on Twitter. She
8: will say more, more 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 black people in her administration.
3: That that's exactly
8: what she would respond. More diversity of the ruling class.
3: Which is the Biden. Which is now what Biden kind of is. is Absolutely. Is, is, yeah.
8: It's just, a friend of mine said today, we had a guest today on uh, This Is Revolution podcast. She called it intersectional imperialism.
2: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Pascal, if you can stick around for 10 more minutes, do you want to... Uh, we've got one more Haiti clip. Sure. Right, great. But yeah,
3: yeah this, this is the oh, more... Yeah. yeah, sorry. Um... Can you hear this?
2: Yes. Have clashed with protesters. No, I can't.
6: The resignation of President Jovenel Moise.
3: Sorry, I'm still kind of getting used to quickly pulling up clips.
1: (laughs) Police Police have clashed clashed with with protesters in the Haitian capital, Port-au-Prince after a march calling for the resignation of President Jovenel Moïse. The rally descended into violence near the city's Champ de mar The protesters say Moïse's term ended last Sunday, but the president insists he has another year left in office. On Tuesday, Moïse attempted to force out three judges who were proposed as potential interim national leaders to replace him. They included interim opposition leader Joseph Messin-Jean-Louis, Moise has been ruling by decree for a year because there's no parliament right now. Legislative elections due in 2018 were delayed.
8: Yeah, this, 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 uh, this is the, the, the current conundrum in Haitian politics right now, in that we have protests on the ground because uh, the opposition in the Haitian society believes that the term of the current president Jovenel Moise, who was picked by a uh, Clinton handpicked former president. Who was uh, Michelle Martelli? Martelli, a compa or carnival singer named Sweet Mickey, uh, that was picked to be president uh, at during the time of the earthquake by the OAS and the Clinton Clinton during the Obama administration. Who uh, you know basically engaged in all kinds of financial mismanagement of funds that came from the Petrocaribe uh, donation of the Hugo Chavez administration in Venezuela, which was giving uh, low priced oil subsidies to Haitian Haitians as a part of the good will relationship that Haiti and Venezuela has had, that corruption plus mismanagement of funds during the earthquake with all kinds of undemocratic uh, 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 aspects that happened during Martelli uh, caused a certain kind of resentment towards his, his governance amongst the Haitian people. He, in a very fraudulent election, manufactures the presidency of Jovenel Moise, who was basically a banana farmer who came out of nowhere that was hand-picked to basically maintain his chokehold over the government. Moise has been so contentious with the Haitian parliament they were not able to have an election. He's been ruling since Fiat for, for several months now. He's saying that his con- the Constitution, which is a debate as to whether or not it, he has one more year, gives him one more year. There's been massive amounts of kidnapping by factions of individuals that people say are being bankrolled by the Moise administration. The opposition, many people say is, is disorganized. There is an internal conflict amongst some aspects of Haitian society who feel that these people just want to usurp Moise's power. more. Moise, to me, is just another puppet president of American imperialism, that he's being protected by the State Department because he was a friend to the Trump administration because, uh, sadly, even though Haiti has this rather intimate relationship with Venezuela, when the Wayne God Guido uh, uh, thing went down in Venezuela, where Trump was trying to orchestrate this coup, you know, Haiti, sadly, to the chagrin of most Haitians, was, because of uh, Moise, greenlit you know, the whole shenanigans the U.S. was going through with Venezuela, and it was really something that, that you know, angered many Haitians because, as we said, from going back to Simon Bolivar in the early 19th century, Haiti has had a very intimate relationship.
2: Yeah, that was, that was, uh, yeah. so I, I know that uh, Simon Bolivar, when he had, you know, because before his the successful liberation, you know, of uh, all these Latin American countries, there were several unsuccessful
8: attacks. Right. And he had to go to Haiti to get, you know, soldiers, printing press, weapons, guns, et cetera, so on, and so forth. The Venezuelan, the Venezuelan flag, the original flag, was actually drafted in Haiti in, in the early 1800s. And uh, there's a statement, very statement, famous statement by Simon Bolivar, is that shall I not, shall I not tell the world that Alexandra Petion, who was then president of Haiti, has liberated my people? So you know, he was, you know, it, it was very well known. And in, in exchange, Petion only asked, wherever you go free the slaves free the slaves sadly because of real politique after their independence venezuela did not or could not recognize haiti but we still have always had a very very close close uh reputation so for the quote-unquote poorest country you know uh Western hemisphere, Haiti's history has punched above its pay its pay grade quite a bit. I would say, you know, the Louisiana territories birthing the, the whole left flank of America as territorially, as well as protecting the whole Bolivarian revolution and the independence of several South American countries for uh, for, for such a quote unquote small rep- black republic is uh something that shouldn't be sneezed at.
3: Absolutely. So the, the exact, um, the, the way that they, that they turned on Venezuela, um, like this, this government was it Moise, Is that how you say it? Moise um, Moise Moise. So the way that Moise turned against, I have this, uh, this graphic from Jacobin that, um, kind of explains it. He, he voted with the OAS, uh, he voted or when they read the OAS, he voted to not recognize Maduro's government. Um, as like a quid, pro, quid pro quo to the United States. Absolutely. Um, so after after kind of you know everything that happened with the OAS and, and uh and Bolivia, um, it's kind of you know, it's it's especially kind of heinous to see that that
8: right. So I mean this goes back to my larger point, and you know, and I'll say many Haitians will be offended. I don't believe that Haiti is a country that's, have, that's had sovereignty since the US occupation of 19, from nineteen fifteen to nineteen thirty-four, because every Haitian president pretty much comes out of the State Department and the one that was, you know, believed to be democratically elected that the US did not uh, uh, support got two coup d'etats and a structural readjustment package, which was Aristide. And you know, a lot of people may have that yeah, he, he was
2: literally taken out of the country by U.S. Marines in 2004,
8: exactly. Exactly. So, so Haiti has a very tortured history with the West and with the United States. And you know, there are many Haitians who will engage in the kind of internal, you know, you know as the, uh, France Fanon said, the oppressed will always hate themselves, who were like, Oh, they. Irresponsible and mismanagement, but they, they there's no interrogation of the forces of of you know geopolitical power in which empire comes to bear that has a role in shaping the internal circumstances. I mean, when you say from the beginning, when the United States had its revolutionary got its independence, the Dutch were giving lines of credit to the U.S. as a country. When Haiti got its independence in 1804, it got slapped. With an embargo and wasn't even recognized by most of the world's and in, 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 in most of the, the world in the West. So when you start from there, making this whole ridiculous notion it was like, oh, the Haitians need to be responsible. Responsible for what? You know, I mean, that the, the, the language in itself is offensive and comical. And this is this is something that not particularly exclusive to Haiti. We can go throughout the global South and find a way in which. Western and American empire have been so noxious in their role in developing in third world countries, and you will hear people from Obama to Clinton to the World Bank say, like, oh, they have to be responsible." It's like there's so much corruption and this and that. I would love to hear the Clintons talking about corruption as a problem in Haiti. Really, really, give me a break. What's the gold money that your brother was taking, Hillary?
2: Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean I, I think they I mean like I mean yes, I think that the Clintons talking about uh corruption anywhere is uh you know, is, is pretty rich and uh particularly when they're you know, yeah, particularly talking about Haiti given all the history uh that you uh that you know that you went went through before. I mean that's that's just um you know, that's just especially obscene. Uh I I mean I, I have um you know, I, I just uh, finished uh, reading. You know, his research for a project and working on. Uh, Christopher Hitchens' book from when uh, Hitchens was still a leftist uh, about the Clintons. Uh, no one left to lie to.
8: Yes. It's,
2: yeah. Yeah. Which is is a uh, like that 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 book is is just like it's it's just like a little bomb that's. Clinton. Crying.
8: I mean, uh, Hitchens hated the the. the it, you know. You know what caused the kitchens to to go that way with the, with the with the with the clintons right you know what was the, thing, the, the the mark the marking event you know what it was what's that it was the uh the execution of Ricky Ray Rector right he said that when he saw bill clinton go to arkansas while running for president to execute you know a, a black man who had the mental capacity and faculty of a child who was basically you know almost kind of uh incapacitated intellectually and pride himself on that as a tough on crime remedy. He was like, this guy's, uh, this guy's. Yeah, no,
2: it's, it's monstrous. I mean, he, uh, yeah, he talks about that in the book uh, that uh, Rector, you know, was so, um, you know, at the time he was assassinated, uh, you know, he he was so incapacitated that uh, that he he thought that the uh, the doc, you know, that the people, you know, searching for a vein, you know, for the lethal injection, you know, were doctors who were trying to help him. Uh, and there's like a really harrowing passage about that in the book about how, you know, for a lot of people from these circumstances, you know, prison was the only time, you know, they could get, you know, medical attention. Uh so, ask, like,
3: oh, what's for dinner later or something like that? Like, oh yeah, yeah.
2: Supposedly Rector uh put aside some of his last supper, you know, for later, you know, since he, he just had no idea, you know, what was uh uh you know what was happening to him. I mean it was essentially yeah, I mean like essentially um killing somebody who who you know, had mental life at that that stage of, like, a small child uh, as this, uh, yeah, as this grotesque, uh, tough-on-crime gesture, uh, which, yeah, we went through uh, a few weeks ago, you know, we went through, you know, I mean, we could talk about Biden, you know, the same way, you know, we went through Biden's history of, uh, of bragging, you know, about his, his role in fueling mass incarceration, and then trying to sort of... Uh, haphazardly walk it back, you know. Since the politics, then walk it back changed. by
3: saying, "Well, you know, as hard like as awful as all this was, you know, we did put away more white people than anybody else, so you know."
2: Yeah, yeah, he actually he actually had this weird pseudo woke justification for it that uh the crime bill, you know, was was about uh, and having those mandatory minimums uh, that that corrected the racial imbalances and sentencing.
3: Yeah, he was like, now everybody has to go to jail for the same amount of time, regardless of race. Whereas before, black people had to go to jail for way longer, and white mm-hmm. people had to go to jail for way less.
8: I mean, uh, what you know? Speaking of Joe Biden, what is what's up with Joe Biden's fascination of saying? The number of biracial kids that we're seeing in TV commercials <laughs> is an indication of the racial progress that we're seeing in America. I'm like, what, dude? What's wrong with
3: you? Like, like, what's up with that? Like, that's that your old. That might just be older, older man, like older. Yeah, life. it's like,
2: look, 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 Jack. I mean, if, if Corn Pop had tried to kiss a white girl, we wouldn't have stood for that. You know, that's like, it's, oh it's, my it's God. such a
0: bizarre. I, I remember
8: I was talking to Glenn Ford, editor of Black Agenda Report, after. The tape, the intercept leaked the tape of Biden talking to civil rights leaders, and I, I mean I did a segment with Jason on This Is Revolution talking about that. And Greg Glenford cracked me up. He said the only thing that saved Joe Biden is that he didn't have a southern accent, because if he did, he would have been done. It was so bad. I mean, he was like, he was like, if y'all don't agree with me, then f y'all. I was like, you know, and I made the statement on uh, on This Is Revolution. I said, you know, uh, I think Trump and Biden are both racists. But I, would, I, would, I I can tell you, I think Trump's is more of a classist than Biden is a racist in that I think Trump would love to be able to have dinner with Mike Tyson and Russell Simmons and hang out with them, while Biden doesn't strike me as a guy who has had any kind of black friends that he would socialize with in any way that were not people that he felt he could use personally in some context.
2: Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, Thank you so much, Pascal. This has been fantastic.
8: Thanks for having me. Let's do this again sometime.
2: No question. All right. That was uh, Pascal Robert, who is the uh, co-host of uh, the uh, This is Revolution uh, podcast, along with uh, our friend and comrade uh, Jason Miles, who people have seen on this channel multiple times before. And uh, we'll see uh, again uh, most immediately tomorrow. Uh, when uh, we will air, uh, uh, we'll, we'll premiere tomorrow, probably at the same time, 7.30, uh, the conversation uh, the Jason and Forrest uh, and J. Andrew World and Jeremy Salmon and I had about uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, so uh, that is uh, going to be tomorrow. Uh, on uh, Wednesday, uh, I am, you know, Forrest and I are going to uh, be joined uh, by uh, Ryan Lake, uh, Daniel Bestner, uh, and uh, Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht uh, to talk about uh, the departed uh, for the uh, the Wednesday, uh, you know, movies live streams. And on Thursday, uh, for uh, the uh, the next episode for patrons, is going to be a conversation on uh, modern monetary theory between uh, Nia Kola, who is a a heterodox economist who advocates it, and uh, C. Derek Varn, who who is uh, more of an orthodox Marxist, and so he has some problems with it, although he's he's not unsympathetic, uh, and I'm mostly just refereeing, although I throw in a few points. Both of these people know way more about MMT than I do. Uh, and I, I think it managed to be a uh, an interesting um, I think it managed to be an interesting kind of medium deep dive into some of the controversies about MMT on the left uh, that has like Nia is advocating, I think a version that's a little bit more sophisticated than the one neat trick that solves everything version of MMT you often see on Twitter. And uh, Varn, you know, has, uh, again, is not unsympathetic, but has some perceptive criticisms. Uh, so let's let's watch uh, just a few minutes of that now. Okay, okay, okay yeah, yeah. So uh, I know the least about it of anybody here. You know, we should, we should get that out of the way first. Uh, so obviously um, I'm familiar with uh, some MMT arguments. It's modern monetary theory. Because I think you you can't be active on the left in 2021 and, and not be familiar with some of these arguments because they're they're kind of everywhere now, mm-hmm. uh, on the uh, on the left, uh, and I have um you know I have specific bones to pick with some of the arguments that I've heard from MMT proponents and I'm a little skeptical of some of the ways. That it's uh, it's talked about, but that doesn't actually necessarily mean that I'm I'm skeptical of um, the larger framework. I'm I'm actually a bit agnostic about the uh, the larger framework, uh, which is why I thought it would it would be good to have uh, two people in this discussion who uh, who knew more about it than uh, than I do. Uh, so uh, Nia, since since you're the person who here who's who's most sympathetic to it. Uh, do you want to do you want to start by just giving us a few minutes of of sort of breakdown of of in broad strokes what modern monetary theory is, what it claims, you know, why it would be politically relevant?
6: Sure, sure, yeah. So MMT, modern monetary theory, is a heterodox approach to economics, uh, which you know is really a combination of a few different schools as well as some other observations. Um, Primarily, it's the post-Keynesian school along with uh, the institutional school, which is much less well-known. And this concept of monetary sovereignty and the chartalist nature of, of fiat money, this idea that money is a, a public asset. It's, it's public money that we deal with, not private money. Um, so the main principles are really like, there are these degrees of monetary sovereignty that uh, nations have which depends on primarily four aspects Um, according to Fidel Kabub, at least. uh, Those would be, you know, that a state uh, prints its own currency, taxes in its own currency, uh, only issues debt in its own currency and has a flexible exchange rate. Uh, There's actually, you know, so there's variation in, in levels of monetary sovereignty and Countries all across the world have most of those, but not necessarily all of them. The United States does fulfill all of them, though, uh, as well as several other countries. Um, other aspects of m that are important to understand is that money is created by the state. It is chartalist in nature. It is not a commodity money.
2: Do, you, um, do you, uh, Sorry, I, I don't want to uh, get too far off, off track, but uh, do you want to define that term you've used a couple times, chartalist?
6: Uh, yeah, chartalism is this idea of Money as being uh, a function of the state. Uh, chartle comes from Latin for token. So it's this idea that money is a token. It's not like a commodity. It's not a, a thing. It's a measurement. Uh, it's like similar to like an inch, you know. You, you know what an inch is, but there's no like physical thing of an inch, right? It's a, it's a measurement. Does that make sense, sir? Uh, yeah.
2: No, yeah, I think I think so. I, I just want to uh, you know to get clear on that. But keep you know, I'm sorry, I didn't want <laughs> to get right. you, uh, take you off course. Uh, finish mm-hmm.
6: your uh, what you were saying. Uh, and other things are you know, that money is a social relation, uh, and a big a big part of it is that government spending is not financed by taxation. This is very important because this has big implications for you know in terms of how we can spend money and how we fund that money, which is that we don't need to tax to fund spending. Taxes are a useful tool. They can be used in many ways, but it's not the only way that we can engage in government spending. I mean, It's not, our spending isn't relying on the taxes. Uh, another thing is also that inflation is not primarily de- driven by demand. Uh, inflation can be affected by demand to some small degree, but it's not uh, the long-term driver of inflation. Inflation is really driven by costs. Uh, these sort of demand fluctuations usually enterprises adjust in one way or another and there is some variation from it but it, it doesn't it, it's transitory in nature um, I think those are the main principles to cover
2: yeah and and before we we get into uh, the dispute about all that I think you know just because you know maybe some people maybe you know maybe people who are uh you know less online uh than uh, than some of us and have have um you know have maybe run into it less you know as as a result or you know who, who just uh you know who might hear some of this and it sounds extremely abstract and they say okay i don't know maybe all that's true maybe it's not but you know what's what's the you know what's the upshot of that right uh so crucially one reason why some people on the contemporary left think that um you know rejecting more conventional approaches to economics in favor of mmt is important uh is because of you know if you think about um you know social democracy or what used to be called like the uh, the minimum program of the left if the maximum program is is abolishing capitalism uh the you know the you know the minimum program is Involves various kinds of reforms a lot of which involve spending lots of money, you know, by the government and um, And so there's an issue about how to uh, To Mm -hmm. think about you know, how that that could be funded uh, How much you're worrying about that whether that all needs to be funded through taxation whether uh, you uh, You know how much you should worry about uh, deficit spending when you're doing things like that and Certainly, at least a popular understanding of of MMT is that it, you know, is that if if all that's true, it shows that a lot of those concerns are um, are at the very least overstated.
6: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, well, sorry. We no, say no, no, no. You go. You go. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, that is very much the key takeaway. Is that we can spend a lot more than we're currently spending that are, uh, these inflation risks are not so great and they can be dealt with. Um, and in terms of inflation, you know, a lot of people, they think that taxation is the only way to, to deal with it, but there's really a lot of different ways. You know, inflation might be arising because of spending, but it also might be that there is disproportionate market power, that there is a firm in whatever sector is inflating that dominates that market. They have... Control, th- th- therefore, they have control over the price. Uh, it, and so it might be uh, that you need increased competition, but it also might be the opposite. It might be that competition is what's creating price instability mm-hmm. because there are ent- there's entries into the market who wish to disrupt uh, the prices because they think that a price war will benefit them.
2: All right. So again, you can watch, uh, the, uh, the rest of that discussion. Uh, I know, you know, I know economics is, uh, you know, is, is not everybody's, uh, everybody's thing, but I think it does also something that a lot of people who watch and listen to the show, um, uh, are, are interested in, uh, in MMT, either because they're fans of it or because they have this sort of more classical Marxist reservations of it, you know, about it that, um, uh, that Varn is expressing. And I know I learned a lot about it from listening to them talk about it. Um, so uh, that's dropping for, uh, for patrons on uh, Thursday. We'll do another preview of course here on YouTube and on the, uh, on the podcast feed. Then uh, just as a uh, friendly reminder, I uh, get uh, the, to get that episode and every single other Thursday episode uh, can uh, become a Patreon a patron. That's patreon.com uh, slash uh, Ben Burgess. Uh, and for, as we always say, the monthly cost of uh, a, a milkshake at a 50s nostalgia diner in 1994, uh, you, uh, you get all of that. Uh, and you also get access to uh, the Discord server. Uh, you, get, uh, you get the monthly uh, Sopranos recap bonus episodes with uh, Wozni Lambre, Nando Vila, and uh, Mike Racine. Uh, and you uh, you get um, and you also get uh, regularly scheduled at least once a month. Uh, you know Discord office hours, uh, group voice chats, uh, and also uh, remember you know we did that uh, that that video that's coming up uh, tomorrow. You know that little extra episode where we're talking about Judas and the Black Messiah uh, was something that was a uh, a movie screened that we did with patrons on the Discord, and I, I think it was fun. I mean we'll, we will we will yeah. do that again
3: that was definitely like a really fun time. And it was cool to be able to feel like, you know, like everyone was watching a movie together and we could all talk about it, at least in the chat while it was going on. And um, I mean, it was awesome obviously to talk about it after the fact and we went on to, you know, YouTube for that. But um, yeah, I I think that doing that more often in the future would be, would be a fun time.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, in this case, yeah, this case we, we recorded the after chat, you know, just cause like the movie just came out. We figured people would be interested in, you know, seeing that as its own YouTube video on Tuesday. Uh, if we do it again in the future, it's not necessarily movies that have like just come out that last week. Yeah, you know, we'll probably, doing the whole recording thing. Yeah, we'll probably just talk about it with uh, with patrons.
3: Having Jason uh, having Jason on to talk about it though was really like um, why I was like we should really record this because I you know he he felt very strongly about it. Him and Pascal did like a hour and a half long review the first the first like the first day they watched it I guess, and then two days later they did another whole conversation about it so i like you know
2: yeah no absolutely uh no i mean having yeah having jason on is is always good and he you know he had a lot to say about that movie and i'm glad we had we got it recorded uh so everybody else can uh, can see that tomorrow uh i want to uh transition to um you know to talking uh about uh the uh, you know, to talking about the uh, the debate uh, that I did earlier tonight, and it's uh, more you know philosophical stuff. So before that, I know there was a super chat question that we got that was related to the discussion we we're having with Pascal about U.S. imperialism.
3: Yeah. Um, so the super chat question was: uh, Do either of you think that China as an imperial force would be better for the world than America? Is it our garbage system that makes it a net negative?
2: Yeah. Uh, by the way, also this is not a super chat question, but somebody asked if I was drinking Seltzer. I'm I'm drinking Bells. It's a good Michigan beer. Uh, so, um, in any you know, just have to stick up for my uh, little uh, regional pride there. Uh, but uh, but no, I, I don't. I mean, I actually uh, you know, well, I'll go to Forrest in a second, but uh, I would say no. Uh, I don't think that China as a, like if China became an imperial hegemon on the level of global power and global reach of the United States, I don't think that would be better uh, for the world that America beat it. I'm I'm against imperialism. I'm not just against this particular empire. Uh, You know, when, when Eugene V. Debs was going to jail for opposing world war one, that wasn't because he thought, you know, that the, uh, that Wilson sucks, but the Kaiser was great. You know, (laughs) Like imperialism in general uh, is is bad and should be opposed. You know, opposed by global working class internationalism. Uh, you know, solidarity. You know, certainly with with Chinese workers and you know workers everywhere else against against all. You know, against the ruling class of any country. So that would be the short answer. Now I think where like it gets a little bit more complicated is that uh, realistically, I've talked. You know, we've talked to uh, Daniel Bessner about this on this channel more than once. Uh, China, and we also, yeah, also the conversation with Bessner and Katie Halper and Ronnie Kalik, uh about foreign policy. Uh, you know, China doesn't have, like, this is not a moral distinction, right? I mean, obviously, you know, the Chinese state does all kinds of, you know, bad things, uh, but China realistically doesn't have the global hegemonic ambitions that the United States does. Like, I think they know that that's like beyond their reach. Like they have ambitions to be more of a, uh, like a stronger regional hegemon for sure. Yeah. But that's more like a sort of normal country ambition. Uh, The idea. Historically,
3: historically, a lot of their more global ambitions have been in response to the United States. Like I was, I was recently um, doing, doing some research into the third worldist project. But, uh, mm-hmm. asia kind of took the lead in, in creating like this third world like you know african and asian co- like conference and china took a huge role in that um you know because they felt like they they had you know power within their region to um improve the third world you know as a whole um i, I don't i think a lot of what china has done um is definitely imperial but it's in it's in response to the relationship they've had with the united states which yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really yeah.
2: it's yeah. It's like, it's, it's like mini imperialism, you know, <laughs> like they, they, they're not like, they have done things that are about, you know, certainly dominating other countries. We could get into a whole thing about, you know, what the exact definition of imperialism is. And if like what Lenin and Bucard said about imperialism is exactly the way we need to understand it. But, you know, just speaking loosely here for a second. Uh, oh, uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, <laughs> Ken, uh, Kenzo future guest, by the way. Uh, yeah.
3: I think I think that having him and uh Paul Prescott on eventually to talk about teachers' unions would be a good combination. Yeah. He had he had them both on. Well he had Paul Prescott on to talk about it the other day and I was thinking about how those are two leftists that are part of the teacher unions that would be cool to
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That'd be a really good episode. Um and uh and yeah, they uh, they only make Oberon in the summer, but uh but you know, money's fungible, so uh thank you. Uh so um uh, that's uh yeah so so bells is the company oberon is their uh is their summer seasonal one uh you know this uh this is is not you know this is the the bells bright which is not actually as good as the oberon but um you know a lot of people uh really like the uh the uh the two-hearted uh but anyway enough uh enough michigan beer talk for now uh the uh and uh yeah, so so just speaking loosely, you know, like like without worrying too much about what exactly the necessary and sufficient conditions are for counting as imperialism, and whether we were are talking about empires throughout history or whatever, the kind of thing that we're talking about when we talk about empires loosely speaking is certainly stuff that China does, uh, but it's much more reactive and it's it's, a, it's on a much smaller scale. And that's that's again, this is not a moral judgment. This is just like a realistic judgment about how global politics works that like no other countries uh, play quite the role that the United States plays in the yeah. rest of the world.
3: I, I, I agree with everything you said. Um, I mean, I think also the leftist position on a global scale should be that every country has uh, its own self-determination, its own, you know what I mean? Like isn't part of an empire is able to you know rule itself as it sees fit. And, you know that means that China wouldn't have the wouldn't have the imperial ambitions or the United States wouldn't have the imperial ambitions it would be that each country kind of gets to decide you know its own things like its own its own state of being I guess and that you know when we when we meet up as a global community it's democratized the power is not within one or two countries to decide how the rest of the world needs to behave the power is within the entire global community to um you know make these decisions for you know, it
2: Exactly, exactly. Right. Like there was a uh, thing The Brooklyn public library does this thing every year. It's the, uh, what do they call it? The uh, night of ideas it used to be the night of philosophy. And they uh, invited me to participate this year. Of course it was on zoom for obvious reasons. Uh, you know, usually there are like thousands of people at this thing. It was much less this time, but uh, there was a, uh, there's a question. Uh, yeah. Big Paul Prescott fans here. Uh, so, um, uh, they had, you know, and there was a question, uh, they were doing this thing, like, they'd have this, like, panel answer these, like, philosophy questions, and they'd have music and whatever, and there was this, uh, and there was this question about, um, that was asked uh, about whether, like, it's even okay, you know, whether it's even, like, morally justifiable to have nation states, and uh, in my answer, I think it was actually kind of funny, because, like, I I, I sort of forgot, like, there's, like, oh, like, you know, what what crowd am I talking to here, right? This is not, you know, uh, you know, this is not uh you know, this is not the weekend show at Jacobin, right? This is people who are going yeah. to this philosophy thing at the library, you know, that um so I I I was sort of, you know, musing out loud about it and I said, Well, you know, um, you know, if you if you are gonna divide the world into nation states, at the very least you can't let any, you know, uh let any of those nation states um sort of have its power grow to the level that the US currently has yeah. in the global system and i brought up the um how like we literally feel comfortable uh sending uh you know assassination drones into other countries that we're not at war with and you know because like that's something we're we're willing to do because nobody's in a position to stop us you know with the 800 pounds gorilla and in making that point you know talking about the drone where i use the phrase uh, flying killer robots and I kind of got the sense—I maybe I'm wrong about this—but I kind of got the sense that it was like, okay, we're going to go back to the next thing on the uh, on the agenda for tonight. You know, crazy person is done talking. A lot, a
3: lot of a lot of uh, big flying killer robot drone fans here. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly.
2: Oh, that you, you can't say
3: that in front of the Raytheon guy in the back, like. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh.
2: So, um, you know, speaking of uh, philosophy. Uh, earlier uh, earlier tonight, uh, I, I did this debate uh, with uh, Douglas Wilson, uh, who is a right wing uh, mega church uh, pastor. Uh, and he came to, uh, author of tons of books. Uh, he came to my attention uh, because <laughs> <laughs> the, for people listening to this later as a podcast, the chat message was. Uh, you know, quote, maybe you're all fly killer robots. Uh, they,
3: you know, they need to have some philosophical discussions at the library, too. So,
2: yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> uh, but um, so, yeah, Wilson uh, first came to my attention because, you know, what I referred to earlier with Pascal uh, that, uh, you know, I'm writing this thing about Hitchens. And so I read. Uh, this book uh, called "Is Christianity Good for the World?" That's like a book of battling back and forth essays between uh, Christopher Hitchens and Douglas Wilson, and uh, in um, and and I found it really frustrating to read uh, because I I thought that um, like you know Hitchens is good in debates when he's talking about sort of historical uh, and c- political or sort of directly moral arguments. Uh, but he gets a little lost you know when it gets more abstract and philosophical and that uh the point that wilson was kind of trying to make was um well if you're an atheist how can you even ask this question you know is 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 Christianity good for the world what do you mean good you know what 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 is good uh without god and there are a lot of like sort of like well you can't spell,
3: you can't spell good without god yeah yeah
2: no that's, that makes <laughs> you think uh so uh, <laughs> And, and there are some like very well established um, objections, you know to uh, to to this uh, this argument. Uh, like going back to Plato in ancient Greece, you know that that uh, this idea that like somehow God or the gods defines goodness. And I was a little frustrated that Hitchens wasn't making any of those arguments. so I kind of wanted to uh, take my own swing at this guy although for reasons that uh, are explained in this first, uh, we'll watch two little bits of this, for reasons in the, the first part we'll show, which is just like the beginning of my opening statement for that, um, that, you know, it's not a subject that I've really been eager to do debates about before. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong one. Let me get... Um, Stop, share, share screen. Here we go. All right. All right, thank you, James. Uh, thank you, Pastor Douglas, for, uh, for doing this. Uh, before I start with the main line of argument, I want to clear up one possible source of confusion. I'm an atheist, obviously, and I'm here to defend the moral honor of atheism, but what I'm not is an anti-theist. I'm not here to besmirch the moral honor of theism. In fact, even though an atheist and more than enough of a philosophy nerd to thoroughly enjoy arguing about topics like theism versus atheism, uh, in the past, I've largely avoided this topic in public debates like this for the simple reason that I spend most of my time arguing about politics, and I don't want to give anyone who knows me from those contexts the impression that there's an anti-theistic component to what I advocate politically. There isn't while I'm an atheist, and I clearly don't think that my being an atheist puts me at any sort of disadvantage in talking about morality, which is what we'll be discussing tonight, I deeply admire the Christian left, figures like Tony Benn or Cornel West, or just to pick a third progressive Christian at random, my wife, Jennifer Burgess. Uh, So that's not the point, right? I think that Like people like Robert E. Lee, who fought for what I regard as the most evil cause in human history, was a Christian, but so was John Brown. So it's clearly possible to be on the right side of history and disagree with me about metaphysics. All I need from anyone politically is that they don't have any interest in trying to impose their religious beliefs on others. All right, that extended bit of throat clearing out of the way. Let's get to the main event. All right. So uh, as I said uh, at the uh, at the top of the episode, whenever I do these debates at Modern Debate, they always send me the video file so I can uh, stick them up here within a day or two. We'll probably air that on uh, Saturday. Is probably this because I think that's the soonest we could do it because there's a lot going on this week.
3: Um, I really appreciate the Robert E. Lee comment. Kind of.
2: Well, yeah, that was a. uh, I'm glad you picked up on that for us. That was a, that was a pointed comment. Uh, <laughs> since uh, it looked
3: like Robert Ely a little bit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Cause it wasn't the topic we were arguing about tonight, but I, I threw in, I worked in as many references to how fucking evil slavery was as I possibly could every time it came up because uh, because pastor Wilson is also in addition to his, uh, you know anti-atheist polemics uh is is a big old like you know historical revisionist oh it wasn't that bad you know sort of confederate apologist kind of guy jesus so um he's uh yeah like 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 he says like and he you
3: platformed him which makes it yeah i mean
2: he'll, he'll say like he'll do the ass covering thing right he'll say well of course you know slavery was terrible it's it's you know, unbiblical to have slavery, whatever, but like he'll sort of, you know,
3: he'll it's sort of though they kind of come out in favor of it in the Bible, don't they? Like
2: yeah. yeah, well, uh, which is the kind of point that Hitchens was making to him in uh, in those debates, uh, and is also a perfect setup uh for the uh the other clip uh that I was gonna show and this one is uh, is a little bit of self-criticism uh you know a few hours later because uh, I think that this is um, that uh, that this is a point that like like as far as like the philosophical content, like as far as the arguments back and forth, I think I said everything that I should have said in this debate. like I feel pretty good about that. But this point that I'm about to show you guys is a point where rhetorically I should have gone after him much harder than I did uh you know it's just because just i, I kind of didn't know what to do with what he just said in the moment uh so the same way what you're bringing up for us about how of course uh it <laughs> let's put it this way uh at the very least it sure seems like the old testament is okay with slavery like it comes you know like whatever it you know it comes up. There's stuff about how slaves are supposed to relate to masters. There's stuff about you know killing the Canaanites and taking women as slaves or whatever. There's,
3: um, there's rules. I mean, there's rules for how a slave is supposed to behave and the punishment that you can give a slave at different times. You know what I mean? Like like within that system. Um, I don't know. I just it's like a it's like a regulatory mechanism for slavery. Which usually, if you're going to regulate something, you're not not in favor of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's at the very. I mean, at the very least, right? I mean, look, this is a. Uh, I think this is a. Uh, you know, this is a fairly obvious criticism of Old Testament ethics. You know, that like if you're aware that slavery is going on because you're regulating it, but you're not condemning it, that's that's pretty bad, right? Like that's that's you know, like if um, you know, I mean, this this is the sort of point. This is the kind of place where like the early two thousands new atheists would have had a good point. You know, like say like okay, hold on. And I think I'm channeling some comedian from that era. I don't even remember who I'm stealing this from, but it's like, how are you going to have like, okay, here are the 10 most important moral rules and I'm going to find room for not working on Saturday. I'm going to find room for not making statues, but I'm not going to find room for don't do slavery. Yeah. <laughs> like, like,
3: you can't wear two different color fabrics or eat like, no, seafood, but then they're like, but the slavery thing, I don't know. We can't come out against it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, this was like, for the most part, you know, he wasn't like, like I kept trying to kind of bait him on his attempts to, uh, to, you know, like, you know, in a understated way, but like, like the Robert E. Lee thing, uh, you know, I kept sort of trying to give him opportunities to, you know, if he wanted to bring up his views, you know, about, um, you know, again, you know, he'll say, oh, I'm not justifying slavery. Of course, slavery is bad but you know, people exaggerate, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, like, like the, like this stuff like that. Uh, so, uh, and then this was about exactly what you're talking about is the, uh, the sort of unsavory stuff in the old Testament.
0: Chair sure.
4: who asks
9: if God can say that killing babies is morally uh, permissible or required then is that God's standard flawed is that the last part is that God's
0: standard flawed correct Are they, is that question for me
5: yes I think so
0: okay and I, I assume it's referring to the Canaanite um you know when God commanded the Israelites to go in and slaughter everybody I think so so all all that is. Is I uh, re- reframe the question: Can God be pro-choice?
2: Apparently, yes. So, sorry was was that addressed to to, to me or James or just just no like, no no I was, I was answering
0: general. the question. If God, the Lord, gives life, the Lord takes life. He is He is the one who has authority over that. So, consequently, when someone dies of a heart attack. God's not guilty of murder. You know, he's simply taking back what he gave in the first place. So uh, God's command to exterminate the Canaanites was holy, righteous and good.
2: Well, that's. Uh, I mean, I, I think that I think that once you've reached the point in an argument where uh, somebody is justifying genocide, uh, then that's not. You know, maybe it's a coincidence uh, that they they hold that position. And that they, uh, and that they, you know, they could also independently have the right idea about what you know the objective foundations of morality. But it's certainly not a good. It's certainly not a good sign. Go
0: ahead.
3: I liked, I liked his his classic pastor, like when he was like, "Could God be pro-choice?" <laughs> Gives you that like. Mm. Yeah, yeah there was actually yeah. a
2: moment there I was like, wait a second, was that like a challenge I was supposed to respond to? <laughs> like, I, I don't even understand what he's doing there. Uh, but uh, but yeah, so like I said, I I think that, um, you know, I think the, uh, once you get to the point of a debate when you're justifying genocide, you know, that's not a good sign. Like, I think that was a reasonably good line. But I also think that I should have, uh, I should have probably just just for rhetorical fact, I probably should have pressed him way harder there. Because, because uh, that's 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 really a remarkable statement, you know. <laughs> that like, uh, so uh, because especially because his rationale that he just gave there for why um, the Israelites being divinely commanded to slaughter the uh, the Canaanites, you know, men, women, and children, uh, was was righteous and, and just. Is is God commanded it? And God takes gives life, so God can take life, and it's not murder. If uh, if God has somebody die of a heart attack, so I guess therefore it's not murder if God commands you to kill someone, and and really the way that I think I probably should have pressed that in uh, in the moment uh, would be um, by by really like being like okay, so let me be clear on this, right? Like uh, so, if the nine eleven hijackers had been correct about what God had wanted, that would have been fine. If uh, if they're if the you know, like son of Sam had been correct, you know that like, you know, God was telling him to commit those murders, then that would have been fine. Like, I don't it- know.
3: Christianity needs like a needs like a, a like the moment like Stalin died or Mao died when when like you know like the second in command like either Khrushchev or like Deng Xiaoping came out and said like oh you know they were like sixty percent right thirty percent wrong like Christianity <laughs> really needs he's one of those <laughs> moments
2: yeah yeah the old t- yeah right like stop like Mao saying about stalin that he was 70 percent correct you know that it's it's like yeah well you know the old testament's 70 percent correct <laughs> uh,
3: you know some of that genocide stuff it, he's had revisionist moments like you know,
2: <laughs> exactly uh,
3: which the firstborn killing the firstborn in every family maybe wasn't
2: yeah, yeah. That was well, the, you know, it's uh, yeah, you gotta use that uh Stalinist passive voice grammatical construction, mistakes were made. Yeah. <laughs> um oddly enough, Stalin actually came up in uh in this debate because at the beginning he said that um he was going through all the ways that he thinks atheism is immoral, and uh he said that atheism, you know, he said he admitted that immorality exists in all societies, and he said that athe that Atheism acts as a greenhouse that leads like more immorality to grow than would grow without it, and uh, I brought up like how in the list of the uh, most the societies in the world with the most atheists, and the like, Sweden and Denmark are both in like the top ten and they have, like, way lower violent crime rates than the United States. And Of course, yeah. obviously, that's not a laboratory experiment because they have more atheism, but they also have way more social democracy. Uh, but... There's uh, more,
3: so, more opportunities for people and, and you know, way more, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. They, um,
3: they like, they feel like maybe they're not completely, you know, destitute living in a society where they're just seen as workhorses, but...
2: Yeah, exactly. But, like, at the very least, the... Uh, once they've got all that social democracy, you know, just, just, just being, you know, just being an atheist doesn't seem to be enough to get them to uh, go out and commit heinous acts of immorality. Uh, But, um, but then he said, Oh, no, no, no. Basically, I mean, maybe this is slightly unfair. People can watch the debate on Saturday, but basically he said, um, well, let's not talk about Sweden and Denmark. Let's talk about the Soviet union. Uh, And, that he starts talking about Stalin and everything that Stalin did, uh, which again, I, the idea that the sort of key thing there is Stalin being an atheist. Uh, you yeah, know, Hitler wasn't an atheist, you know. That's uh, you know, yeah, it, but he,
3: he's he's probably you know going out there defending Hitler, judging by doing uh doing Hitler apologetics.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, he or maybe he would have if Hitler had been an American. Yeah. yeah. Um and a, you know particularly uh you know an american protestant um but yeah which actually as uh, uh Oliver, i guess uh, in the chat did watch the debate this was a real moment that happened so somebody said in the uh, in the q and a they you know they basically brought up oh uh, well you say that um you know stalin uh was uh yeah hitler uh hitler was a uh, hitler was a catholic and maybe he was a heretical catholic and you know probably some weird Nordic pagan paganism stuff going on there, but he certainly wasn't an atheist. Uh but um but you know, since he brought up Stalin, uh and how well, why shouldn't Stalin have done all that stuff if he uh if he knew that he wasn't gonna be punished after he died, uh essentially, you know, at least that's what I got out of the example. Somebody in the QA actually brought up, well hold on if uh according to your views, Stalin, if Stalin had had a deathbed repentance, Stalin is in heaven. Whereas like if Alan Turing uh, had, uh, uh, did not, you know, have a uh, deathbed repentance for, you know, his homosexuality, then uh, according to this kind of right-wing Calvinist theology, uh, Turing is in hell and uh, he bit the bullet. He said, yeah, you know, uh, that's, that's right. Which is kind of amazing. Cause it's like, overall his affect you know he's so mild-mannered you know and and uh and so much of what he was saying was so abstract but there were just these moments like i remember um in the last i don't know if this is the last Chapo, but one of the last few they were interviewing uh matt and liz Brunig, uh and um and liz had a line i don't remember who she was talking about debating but like some like welfare reform ghoul and uh she said that like her view is that like the lion's share of what, uh, of what you should be trying to do in a debate is to get the other person to say what they actually believe, <laughs> you know, which,
3: yeah. I, you I, know. Think that, you know, I mean, especially with somebody who like historical revisionism or, you know, social, social safety net revisionism kind of is a, is a, is a big part of it. I mean, I think they, the two things kind of go hand in hand. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think that, I think, uh, you know, one, one, thing that people kind of throw out there that are kind of pro-religion in socialism which listen i i don't i mean i think i'm i'd call myself agnostic i guess um yeah. on all this stuff but i mean you know liberation theology is a pretty pure leftist form of, of uh, catholicism and you know it was crushed by the um by the catholic church you know at one point and it's it's kind of a, a conversation about you know the inevitable hierarchies in any social institution more than it is i think about um religion itself. I i just think, you know, I I don't think that, that should be made. I don't think religion should have any part in policy. Like that's kind of my thing. Like, like well, that's, that's kind of
2: what I was saying of that first clip, you know, that like I don't um I mean look, I've I've got, you know, I've I've spent a decent amount of my life, you know, thinking and arguing about stuff like this. Obviously I have my opinions. I'm happy to uh I'm happy to argue for them. I enjoy doing that, but uh but it's not it's not part of a political program like all i all i require from anybody politically is is just that they you know agree with you know the separation of church and state basically yeah um i think they,
3: i think that's a good because i you know i think that there's a lot of uh i mean kind of the new atheists personified this but like a lot of like just bashing re- bashing religion and then kind of expecting that like somehow like reason will prevail and that people will be like, you know, that's a good point. And it's like people with religious beliefs hold them so firmly at some points that like people that you could talk to and, you know what I mean? Like that you could have a conversation with and they would agree with your points. But religion is just kind of an institution that they've, you know, lived with all of their lives that I, you know, just bashing it for the sake of it and being like, well, religion is the most poisonous force we've ever had. It kind of, it kind of, you know, it's the same kind of cop out that like allows corporate power to keep going or, 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 no, for general.
5: sure.
2: Yeah. yeah. And I think you could see that in some later uh, later Hitchens debates where um he's so intent on the anti-religion stuff that he kind of forgets some things that he used to know that like he'll he'll blame, yeah. You know, um like there there are even points where he'll kind of blame, you know, um poverty and underdevelopment in some global south countries on um You know, resources being spread too thin because, like the you know, the Pope told people not to use birth control. It's like, come on, dude, you you know better than this. Yeah, you know, like this, this is not, uh, you know, it. it, You know, guy was a socialist for most of his life. You know, uh, you know he's you know he should know better than that. Uh, and especially, you know, I mean, look, I mean, even aside from anything, any sort of socialist or anti-imperialist analysis of what actually leads to underdevelopment in the global south. Um, like you should just be able to like observe, like, hey, look, in you know, Spain and Italy, you know, ninety percent of the people or whatever are Catholics, uh, but you don't have the same population rates because people aren't worried about who's going to support them in their old age, uh, the, the way that you you do in some global South countries, you know. So like, it's it's just a very, um, you know, it, it's it's you know, like I think focusing on like capital R religion as the so- source of social ills, I think could really, really like flatten people's analysis in really bad ways. And, and yeah, I mean, I'll, look, I, I, I get, I, I think that, um, you know, I'm a slightly weird position with it because in the context of having like a philosophical debate about it, you know, be you know pretty militant, but like, I don't think it really, I don't think it's part of politics at all. If anything, I think that the, the relationship goes the other way around, That part of the point of socialist politics is that I want a society where uh, people are freed from financial stress and they have enough free time that they can sit around, you know, you know, thinking and arguing about like esoteric stuff like this.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And people always and people always will. Um, I think that you know, just giving people the ability, like giving the people who really are interested in, in coming up with these questions, the ability to actually think them through. It's going to be far more beneficial for our central meaning i guess as people than a society where people are kind of just forced into working you know jobs that they don't find particularly engaging for for the money and then um you know just not fulfilling those those parts i think we're really i think we've really fucked up you know what people could like i think we have really fucked up um you know like people could have far more uh you know, we could we could be far more developed as a society if we weren't always focused on profit and I think that that's a good argument for leftist politics in general.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure, you know but like um yeah, so anyway, in any case uh, you know I I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm not you know like there's this song uh, by Tim Minchin uh it's it's like a little bit of a kind of funny little you know, uh, new atheisty a- anthem, although I, I shouldn't even say new atheisty really because it's like very like not aggressive. It's it, it's uh, it's it's even kind of like a fun song called uh, White Wine in the Sun. Uh, that that's about like the lyrics are about like hey, I don't believe in any of this stuff, but I really like Christmas. It's a nice song, I like it. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there's this lyric at the beginning of the song, uh, that's I would uh, I would rather break bread with uh, Richard Dawkins, the Desmond Tutu. And that lyric right there has always been my objection to uh, (laughs) capital N capital A new atheism. It's like, uh, you gotta be fucking kidding me. Like that's, there's something very very wrong with you. (laughs) If you'd rather have a meal with uh, Richard Dawkins,
3: you'd have to to pay me to have a meal with Richard Dawkins. I don't think I... I, I, I think that I could have probably gone down the new atheist rabbit hole if I hadn't discovered, you know, uh, socialism like leftism and like you know michael and and things like like that like michael brooks kind of you know um really enlightened my thinking on some of that and i think that i probably could have just gone to the point where if i hadn't discovered you know like like leftism and socialism like as concepts and are and like critique of actual power i definitely could have gone to like the you know what things suck because of religion and and you
2: know yeah right yep yep so uh so yeah, be uh you know, don't uh uh you know don't be a, you know uh don't be a new atheist, uh, you know, be a uh, be an old atheist who uh who to uh, who focuses on uh uh who focuses on the things that are uh, much larger scale factors, poisoning everything. Yeah. Uh, and uh, And religion
3: sometimes definitely plays a role in that. I mean you know, not not religion conceptually, but, you know, uh, the church's power in society. And, um, you know, I mean, there's definitely been a, a huge, uh, disgusting like evangelical drop, like the evangelical movement in this country, like combining forces with the Republican Party, which is another critique of power because these mega church uh, people wanted to increase their own power. You know what I mean? Like so like that influencing policy has been absolutely horrible. But I don't think the takeaway is that it's bad because religion is bad. I mean, that's kind of a
2: yeah, no, right. I it's, it's bad. Uh, look, it's it's bad because the uh, because unjust hierarchical institutions are bad, and the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves to um, to rationalize uh, those institutions uh, are bad. Uh, but you know, and of course, historically, those have often been religious stories, but not yep. necessarily. Uh, you know, you you can certainly have, I mean, look, uh, you know, Sam Harris, it wouldn't be a GTA episode if we didn't uh, shit on him at least once, uh, you know, like, like Sam Harris is, uh, is, is, you know, it, everything is scientific and secular, but it's, you know, but his agenda is entirely about telling stories to rationalize, uh, you know, the, uh, the status quo and, you know, and, and certainly at least, you um, and certainly at least global imperial hierarchy. Uh, you know, so I, I think, um, you know, and and actually sometimes his last few years, he's kind of dipped a toe in uh, in, in rationalizing uh, domestic racial hierarchy too. Remember that sound drop that Michael always used of uh, uh, Sam Harris from his debate about with Ezra Klein about the uh, bell curve, you know, saying we can't even talk about Neanderthal DNA anymore.
3: You know what's really funny? The first episode that I ever – Edited anything for TMBS was um, that episode where they talked about the, the bell curve uh, and his Ezra, Ezra Klein <laughs> interview and um, or whatever his Ezra Klein debate and like uh, I was there like that was the first time I ever really ended up doing any clip editing for them.
2: Yeah, and and I would say yeah, somebody in chat says uh, capitalism is the dominant religion now, which is actually very similar to something that uh, Karl Marx says you know, everybody remembers, of course, the uh, very, very young Karl Marx in the uh, introduction of philosophy of right, saying that, uh, you know, religion is the opiate of the people. Uh, and, uh, you know, what he's talking about is the, you know, is, you know, and again, I mean, it's obviously Marx is, you know, is an atheist and a pretty militant one. But what he's talking about in that passage is the use of uh, the use of religious consolation as a way of sort of getting people to accept uh, capitalism. But I think, as far as like honestly you know there are people um in i mean obviously douglas wilson's exist you know who who use uh religion uh to rationalize all kinds of horrifying shit uh then again Cordell west exists you know so yeah. uh, but
3: the same thing with like you know the catholic church exists but liberation theology exists like
2: uh yeah yeah exactly and then um but uh, I, I'd also uh, I'd also say as far as the overall situation in 2021, I think that opiate of the people" passage is probably less relevant than something that uh, Mark says. I think it's in the introduction to one of the editions of Capital, uh, where he's got this great line, you know. So the um, uh, you know the Church of England has these uh, 39 articles of faith, uh, you know, which are the things that you're supposed to believe, you know, to uh, to be a member of the Church of England. Uh, and um, and Marx has this great article uh, This great line in this introduction To one of the editions of Capital Where he's saying uh, that um, Like, you know Atheism is only considered Sort of mildly, you know Subversive or whatever But uh, really the church, you know the, uh, They would get much angrier At any attempt to expropriate Even 139th of the Church of England's property Than to die, deny all 39 of the articles of faith <laughs>
3: Yeah, and there's that, and and there's the uh, you know today the the thing that gets church, like people in churches most fired up I feel like is the idea that they could tax tax churches and uh, yeah which,
2: which is actually I'll say one last thing about the Douglas Wilson debate I thought was kind of funny because he was talking about um, I mean obviously he'd read up on me enough you know before we had to have some idea of what my politics were and so he had this little barb at the beginning about like how of course, lots of the immoral things that atheism leads people to believe uh, are uh, things that, you know, atheists think are moral. And so he starts rattling them off, and he's like, you know, abortion and same-sex marriage and uh, uh, statist thievery, uh, meaning, like, redistributive (laughs) taxation. And I, I, you know, I didn't even point it out, you know, because, like, we were just like, this was, he said, like, a hundred things in his opening statement that I was trying to respond to all of them. But it's like, This one in particular is funny because the one and only like explicit political teacher to the new Testament is that you should pay your taxes and not complain about it.
3: Yeah. And, and the other one is, you know, Jesus going into the uh, whatever, flipping over the tables, um, like the the debt collectors, you know what I mean? Like it's a kind of a, I don't know. It's the, the politics of where actual Christianity could lead and the politics of where it has led to, I guess, in like in the prosperity gospel age are pretty fucking incredible.
2: Yeah. I mean, of course the prosperity gospel is, is just amazing. Like that's like the, um, you know, like that's, that's like the, uh, the worst aspects of both, um, of both the kind of thing that's like, of both, uh, like, I don't know. Like I remember seeing an old interview with Bill Gates, like there's like probably the, uh, the closest I've ever, you know, well, you know, not, you know, not ever, but you know, in since the part of my life where you know I've, I've come to the conclusions that I've come to about religion, you know, the uh, the closest that I've I've come to, uh, you know, finding theism really attractive is reading this old interview with Bill Gates where he said he didn't go to church because that was time he could be spending uh, making money making money, uh, and uh, so it's like that sort of just like nihilistically evil naked capitalist worldview but it's like the worst elements of that and fundamentalist hucksterism state, you know, like, like, uh, you know, snake handling fun, you know, like fundamentalism. Um, yeah. Like the worst elements of those two worldviews come together into the prosperity gospel. It's like this, it's this like bizarre, like Frankenstein hodgepodge of the teachings of like Jesus and Gordon Gekko. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and yeah. you know, it's, it's capitalism will always, I mean, like, I, like, I think there's obviously a critique of capitalism as a whole, which we have. Sure. There's, like, a, a critique of, like, the unbridled, like, U.S. style of capitalism. Like, you know what I mean? That's that's yeah. so fully permeated everything that, you know, it, it's just the rawest form of it. And it's, like, the rawest form of evangelicalism mixed with that. Exactly. Like, it's the, I
2: don't yeah. know. No, exactly. Um, and, and, I, and I would say, actually, just to, you know, just to sort of, Go back to full on politics, and um, and and maybe we can kind of end on this point, or at least before we plug everything, and go uh, that you know the the critique of the totally unbridled uh, you know American version of capitalism and the critique of of capitalism per se. I think uh, go um, you know go hand in hand. I mean, this is this is the big point that Bascar was making throughout his book, The Socialist Manifesto, uh, that. Of course, yeah, I mean what we have in uh in this country uh is a is, is just a particularly, you know, grotesque and horrifying, you know, it's like hard to describe without like just going into, you know, um uh, into you know uh uh Bruce Steinworks, you know, it's the death right. rap, well, suicide rap. The same but,
3: it's the same as our critique of empire in general and our critique of US empire. You know what I mean? Like it's
2: the same yeah. yeah, no, for sure. And like and and I think one way of relating the two is this, which is to say, of course, look, obviously anybody with with uh, with half a brain and left wing values, of course, thinks that it would be great if we could at least get some, you know, uh solid social democracy up in this thing that you know that if that that obviously there's a difference between, um, you know, between, uh, America in 2021 and like Sweden in the seventies at the height of their welfare state or even Sweden now, you know, but, uh, certainly yeah. especially Sweden in the seventies, obviously that's an important difference. The point is not to deny that that's an important difference or to say, well, whatever, you know, it's all capitalism. Like Dr. Manhattan saying that, you know, a dead body and a living one have the same number of molecules in them. So who cares, you know, like that's not the point. The point uh, that Boscar is making throughout Socialist Manifesto is that if you think it's important to get away from the kind of hellscape that we've got in this country where, you know, uh, markets infiltrate every sphere of life and and there's just no meaningful regulation or, you know, welfare's programs, uh, if you think that's important, that actually itself gives you a reason to have more radical horizons than just stopping at, uh, you know, like Swedish-style social democracy, because the thing about social democracy is, of course, it's a necessary starting point for anything more radical. But if you end there, you've left the ruling class in power. You've left the current owners of the uh, means of production, distribution, and exchange. You've left them in their positions of economic, structural power in the economy. And realistically, you know, they will if they retain that power, they will find ways to translate that into political power. And then the first time they, they, they feel like they have a chance, they feel like they can do it you know, without provoking massive backlash, they'll start rolling back all of those welfarist gains. They'll start you know, rolling the social democratic boulder back down the hill. Uh, and at a certain point, uh, precisely because those social democratic gains are important to achieve, precisely because they matter, in order to safeguard them, like Michael Brooks, I remember putting it, you know, you you have to start taking pieces off the board by democratizing the economy. And of course, we also have like more principled ideological reasons to want to do that. But I mean, like, that's also just a necessity, because without that, you know, all of those achievements are going to be undone. We've seen that play out in lots of countries around the world to one extent or another. Yeah. Alright, uh, I think we're going to cut it there uh, for uh, for today, so just uh, once again, just to uh, just quickly re- recap, uh, there is uh, going to be tomorrow uh, at uh, 7.30, uh, we will be premiering uh, the discussion that we recorded on Saturday right after we all watched uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. That was really good. Uh, check that yeah, out. I'm
0: really
3: excited for uh, for people to, to see that, and I'm sure there are going to be some angry people that you know, that that heartily disagree with both sides of that debate, but <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um yeah, Jason and I uh had a a friend you know had a had a friendly disagreement about how to see the movie and I think everybody else was maybe somewhere in between. But uh there was um so uh and then speaking of movies on Wednesday for the ongoing uh uh Wednesday movie live stream series uh, me, Forrest, uh, philosophy professor Ryan Lake, uh, the uh, Jacobin deputy editor, Micah Utrecht, uh, and uh, historian and Jacobin contributing uh, editor um, uh, Daniel uh, Bessner are going to be talking about the depotted. Uh, that should be a lot of fun. Uh, on uh, Thursday, uh, the, uh, the patron bonus episode about modern monetary theory that you saw earlier uh, is, uh, is dropping. On on uh, Friday, I think we're going to experiment with the first one of those Philosophy Friday uh, live streams with Jennifer talking about Kantianism and utilitarianism, and then on uh, on Saturday, I guess uh, we'll uh, we'll premiere the uh, the debate that I did earlier tonight here. Uh, If you can't wait till then, you can you know you can find it on the Modern Debate channel, but yeah, watch it here. Uh, So uh, lots of good stuff.
3: You know what I watched last night? I watched uh, Infernal Affairs. Oh, um,
2: the, ori- the original Hong Kong movie that. The yeah, the yeah, industry. yeah.
3: So I was, I, I didn't want to interrupt your, uh, you know, your, yeah, your yeah, yeah. Uh, everything happening this week, but I, I, I watched that, and I, you know, I've watched The Departed like probably like three or four times, more more in pieces than in, you know, like uh. it's like a commitment of an afternoon really to, <laughs> to watch it. But um, I so it was it was so crazy to see like some of those scenes pretty much done exactly the same way, but like. You know, in like a, a much more, I guess, minimalistic, um, like Hong Kong film film style. Yeah,
2: no, that that would be really interesting. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've not seen Infertile Affairs*. I will see *The Departed* again uh, tomorrow night, uh, so I can talk about it on Wednesday. So I will see everybody uh, back here then. Uh, thank you so much uh, to uh, to everybody uh, for uh, for coming, for uh, for for doing super chats, for uh, for asking questions. Uh, and just watching, hanging out with us for uh, the last few hours. Left is best.